How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research, so you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them, so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. And I am one of the experts that's going to help you become an expert, Gary Horn. And I'm your co-host, Justin Bishop. And you shame me. I ask you for help, and you shame me. I'm writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. There are so many other reasons we could shame you, Todd. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, but anyways, thank you for uh, joining us for part seven, our finale of our series covering Mr. Sam Raimi, titled Sam Raimi, The Entertainer. This is it, fellas. Last episode. For some reason, last episodes always feel like a big deal because it's been a journey. It's been, see, seven episodes. That's 14 weeks, 14 weeks of Sam Raimi. So uh, I've done a bit. The, the final episodes always feel like this is like a big deal because now we're going to move on to something completely different and start from scratch after this. Yeah. I don't even want to move on. No, we're just going to, well, we're going to revisit Sam Raimi later this year. So you'll be surprised what you're willing to do when the Lamia comes for you. There it is. <laughs> um, did you know? Did you know? Fun fact up front. Oh wow! Did wow, you know right that, that Sam Raimi and Weird Al Yankovic share a birthday? Like the same year and everything. The exact same everything. October twenty third, nineteen fifty nine. I did not know that. You think they could be like twins, like long lost? Like a is it like a parent trap situation? I don't know if you've ever seen them. They look exactly alike. <laughs> they could be fraternal <laughs> twins. <laughs> That's it. So we have spent this entire Sam Raimi series exploring what I like to refer to as the director's spooka blast years. Uh, we call this series Sam Raimi the Entertainer because his goal all along has been to entertain audiences by any means necessary, and he's willing to use every trick at his disposal to do so. And in those early films, he not only used every trick in the book, but he he created new ones, and in doing so, he crafted a very unique style, especially visually, that can only be described as distinctly Raimi-esque. So after The Quick and the Dead failed to make a splash at the box office, Raimi kind of blamed himself. We talked about that during that episode. He blamed the very filmmaking style that we're here to celebrate. The thing that, honestly, I think makes Sam Raimi so special. It's what we think about when we think about Sam Raimi. Uh, then in his subsequent films, he adapted his style to fit the film that he was making. Uh, with few exceptions, his, his next few films, A Simple Plan for the Love of the Game and the Gift, exhibit very few of the visual flourishes that we've come to expect from the director. I've been looking through some stuff and it at first felt kind of unfortunate, but um, the more I read about him, like it's like maybe it was necessary that it happened. Um, he seems yeah, I to think have... it's like growth. It's, it's him growing as an artist, I believe. Yeah, he seems like he was becoming kind of numb when you read some of the interviews around it. And he was so, just wanted to test the waters and 
this kind of seemed to be what the doctor actually, actually I have uh, a quote from him here about it. He says, uh, after I made the quick and the dead, which was the ultimate style fest for me, I felt very empty and I felt that I cannot continue down this road of style. I need substance. So I took a break from the movie business for a couple of years. I said, I wanted to find a picture where the script is the movie and the acting is the movie. And my wife showed me a simple plan, the book from Scott B. Smith. And I loved it. It's a brilliant screenplay. And that's where I was then. I was all about being invisible as the director with no style, letting people like Bill Paxson and Billy Bob Thornton, Bridget Fonda do all the heavy lifting. I love that. It reinvigorated me and reminded me of why I love movies. Yeah. And if you watch a simple plan, I mean, you'll see that there are no like Sam Raimi. There are no weird angles or, or bizarre close-ups or like jump zooms or any of the kind of things that you expect from a Sam Raimi movie. Uh, and that really does show, I think, his growth as a director. And I don't think that he would have been able to make, let's say, the Spider-Man movies had he not grown in that way, you know, because the Spider-Man movies, again, we're going to talk about them uh, in depth later this year, but they don't look like a Sam Raimi, like an, they don't look like Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2 for their entire runtime. There are moments here and there. Uh, they're definitely Sam Raimi movies, but they don't all have that, like, they're not all quirky shots every other second. You know what I mean? It's yeah, it's sad, too, because just on a side note, I was watching interviews with him on YouTube, and there are interviews definitely around the time of Drag Me to Hell where people are asking him questions about Spider-Man it's always, 4. It's every time the, every time they ask, so what are you doing next? Well, we're going to start shooting Spider-Man 4 in February. Yeah. Like, mm. Oh, Sam. <laughs> oh, Sam. Your heart's about to be broken again. <laughs> well, after all of those films, uh, you know, uh, Simple Plan, The Gift, etc., Raimi entered the world of blockbuster filmmaking with the hugely successful Spider-Man trilogy. And, uh, and again, we're going to talk about those movies. I know that you know, every, everyone who's been listening to this series has asked us. We just have to take a break from Sam Raimi for a little while. And we think those movies are going to do well as their own series down the line. And while those movies, like I mentioned, they do have those kind of spookablast flourishes here and there. I, the one that really comes to mind for me is like the Doc Ock scene in Spider-Man 2 where you've got the tentacles flying everywhere. That's very like Evil Dead. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. For the most yeah. part, those movies are Raimi continuing to rein in his visual style or at least adapting it to a more mainstream style. But then after Spider-Man 3 left Raimi exhausted and frustrated by the studio's constant interference, uh, not to mention... He, did, he devoted nearly an entire decade of his life to this franchise. And like we said, he was willing to do it again, but he did need a palate cleanser. So he wanted something smaller. He wanted something more intimate, something with a lower budget that would allow him to work with a smaller team of collaborators where it was like just more hands-on, you know, like the stuff that he started out making. He was always a hands-on director. And when you're working on these massive blockbusters like Spider-Man, you can't get your hands dirty in the way that you can on smaller productions. You know, it's like, you got to do it yourself or you work with a small team of people. Whereas on Spider-Man, it's like, all right, tell that crew over there to go do this and tell this department to do this. It's more like, it's a very different style of directing than what he had done early on in his career. And he kind of missed the hands-on approach. And so a, the film that would mark Raimi's return to the horror genre after a 16 year absence is the subject of today's episode. And the conclusion to our Sam Raimi series we are talking, of course, about Drag Me to Hell. You shame me. Soon it will be you who comes begging to me. Someone has cursed you. Is the Lamia the most feared of all demons? 
For the first three days, the spirit torments its victims. After that, it will come to take you. Take me where? To burn in hell for eternity. It's coming for me. Please listen to me. There's nothing coming for you. How do I get rid of this? I welcome. You can give the curse away. So, you wish to know something of your destiny. Very good. We shall see what the film has in store. Meaning, we're going to spoil <clears throat> the hell out of this movie. So, if you haven't seen it, you should not pretend to understand the film only by intellect. <laughs> Get your uh, filthy never... pig knuckle off my desk, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> the pig knuckle kind of like a camel toe? <laughs> I, I was going to say, that is my nutsack. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the script for Drag Me to Hell had actually been written more than 10 years before the film went into production, even before Raimi had been attached to the Spider-Man films. Uh, written by Sam and his brother Ivan, the script was initially simply titled The Curse. And mm. I actually found out a little more information on this uh, just kind of uh, earlier today, actually, in that this not only started as a script you know, 10 years earlier, it had actually started prior to that in 1989 sam and ivan had written a short story called the curse back in 1989 and then it was not until like around the time he was uh, making spider-man that they decided to adapt the story into a screenplay which they were actually writing not for sam to direct they were writing it for sam to produce for someone else to direct it's weird too i was reading some things and i, I was trying to find like i heard i read stories about the early script and and i couldn't find any like actual confirmation so sam i know you're listening and if you say this isn't true then i understand but supposedly like it had way more subplot with Stu and like being yeah. hired by the mother like uh what's his face his mother to like kill christine and um and then what? like <laughs> yeah and so like, like he, Stu, Stu was hired to kill christine Wait, which one's <laughs> Stu's the guy? Yeah, the at the bank. Yeah, yeah. So him. Yeah. So so wow. that gets blown <laughs> up. He 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 embezzles a bunch of money, and then he loses it in a poker game, and then he's down on his luck. And his and uh, I forget Justin Long's character's name right now. Clay Clay's mm -hmm. mother hires him to kill her. I don't know. It leads to like a showdown at the train station, and he pulls the gun on her, and Clay recognizes that it's his dad's gun or something and huh. she's like just take this and like is trying to give him like money and gives him the coin at the mm. train station and then clay tries to jump on him and he kills clay but then he falls down and the things drag him to hell so she uh, lives uh, but clay is dead that's interesting wow. but i, I kind of like the version we got better i think uh i mean basically when when he started writing it as a script uh, this is after he had founded his production company, which did primarily horror movies. We'll talk about them in a minute. Uh, and he's like, well, I might as well just turn the short story into a screenplay and somebody can turn it into a movie. But he found out that like having another like lesser known or unknown director direct the script meant that they were going to get a smaller budget than if spider-man's sam raimi or the guy directing it you know so, you so he started like cutting stuff from the script trying to get it to a smaller budget and eventually realized 
why am I doing this? I will, <laughs> I, I like the version of the script that it started out as I should just make this movie. And he realized like through the screenwriting process that, oh no, I'm not writing this for someone else. This is like, I want to make this. That, like you said, the actual intention for the project was going to be Ramey produces it, which he'd been doing a lot of. And we talked about that last episode and we'll talk more about it in a minute too. But uh, he, he actually had somebody in mind to direct it. It was a, a little known guy, this up and comer uh, that he liked after seeing his weird little film, Shaun of the Dead. Whoa, and, what? No, wow. He was after Edgar Wright. I guess this was a big moment for Wright, too, because to take this tangent even further off the rails, I found a bunch of stuff with him talking about Ramey and Edgar Wright saying that uh, he used to watch this show by a fellow named Jonathan Ross called The Incredibly Strange Film Show. Mm-hmm. And they did an hour on Sam Ramey one time. And although Wright had been interested in film, it was that episode that was the flashpoint for his own career that made him wow. decide to direct movies. He loved them, but it was the story of Sam Raimi and Evil Dead that made him understand he didn't have to be in Hollywood, even though he wasn't close. He never thought that he could actually make movies, but this showed him that he could become a filmmaker himself. In this interview I was reading with him, he said, quote, to hear the story of this person age 18 making a horror film and eventually getting it seen worldwide was astonishing to me. Uh, At that point, I don't even think I'd ever seen the Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2. I definitely hadn't seen Evil Dead. It was banned. But I saw the Jonathan Ross documentary and I was staggered. I thought, this is what I want to do just to keep dragging this on. As a teenager, he says Evil Dead 2 became a huge inspiration for him. He says he didn't know you could do movies like what he called a uh, fever dream Looney Tunes horror movie. (laughs) uh, He said that's uh, accurate. That's accurate. He said, quote, this is the big inspiration when I was starting out. It just appealed to me how go for broke this guy was. Um, and anyway, back to the point of this episode, uh, Shaun of the Dead obviously opened a lot of doors, but to quote Edgar Wright, he said, not only have I now met Sam on several occasions, we've become really good friends, which is amazing. Later, he actually offered me the curse, which became Drag Me to Hell. He'd written it and he wanted me to direct it, but I couldn't accept a, because I was already starting up hot fuzz and B, because it was so obvious to me that it should be Sam Raimi directing it. I told him, no, you have to do this. If I did it, it would just be like singing karaoke. So direct he did. Uh, Wright also says that he visited the set of Drag Me to Hell while it was filming. Uh, He said uh, it was the second from the last day of the shoot, and Sam was shooting a scene in a graveyard. He was wearing his usual suit and tie combo, but it was completely covered in mud. And he saw me, and across the stage, he yelled, this is all your fault, right? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, wow. So as they're writing the script, their idea behind the story was pretty simple. The the Raimi brothers set out to write a morality tale. That's something you're going to hear Sam Raimi say again and again about this script. It's a story about a character who wants to be a good person, but makes, uh, as Raimi put it, a choice to sin for their own betterment, setting the film's plot in motion. So pretty simple, pretty simple setup to a story. And they chose to write their protagonist, Christine. She was actually named Stephanie in the original script, but Alison Lohman decided she didn't like the name Stephanie and asked them to change it to Christine. I don't know why. Uh, she's like, nah, this is a Christine. Sam Raimi's like, all right, fine. She's Christine. Sam Raimi just, just like, whatever, I don't care. Uh, they wrote her as a morally complex character. Like, she's not a bad person at all. She's a good person, but she, like all of us, is just trying to make it day to day. And in doing so, makes a decision that is kind of at odds with her conscience. Like she knows she's making the wrong decision, but she does it anyway uh, out of 
self, you know, out of selfishness, basically. But then she's put into a situation where her punishment doesn't fit her crime. And the rest of the story explores how she's going to deal with that. So as a result, Christine becomes another in a long line of reluctant heroes in Raimi's filmography. Uh, from Peyton Westlake in Dark Man to Ash Williams to Peter Parker, Raimi's films are filled with average people who are thrust into fantastic situations that they never asked to be a part of. Yeah, there's a, you know, if you get into genre films, especially even if you're just kind of on the, you know, outer fringes wanting to get deeper into films like the stuff we talk about here on the show, odds are there's a good chance you're starting with stuff like Star Wars, where if you get into the production of that, there's a big talk about the hero's journey. George Lucas didn't have, you know, the corner on that market. Uh, William Shakespeare actually said some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And in those three, in those three types of sections, you know, some are born great. And those to me kind of set the stage for a tragedy where it's nowhere to go but down. Uh, some achieve greatness, and that's kind of the end game of this story. But what we're talking about here is those folks who have greatness thrust upon them. And if you look at folks like Spielberg, a lot of his stuff now it's, you know, coming of age, but it's sort of rising to the occasion. Uh, you know, sometimes that occasion is war. Sometimes that occasion is aliens or sharks. <laughs> uh, sometimes the occasion is life. But, you know, people really latch on to that hero's journey. Uh, so much so looking at Spielberg of his 34 films, only two haven't been nominated for Oscars. And of those 34, they've won a total of 35 Oscars. So there's something to it, the hero's journey. And I think this is uh, a great way to kind of set this type of narrative up this is a twisted version of the hero's journey i was just thinking about i know it's popularized by joseph campbell yeah yeah oh. joseph campbell's hero's journey is is kind of like you know that that's kind of where it entered popular culture um i think he was uh i think he was kind of influenced by carl Jung. but if you watch um apocalypse now that is one of the most classic examples of what you're talking about of the hero's journey you could apply that, I think, better to Peter Parker or or Ash more so than Christine here. I think she's thrown into something. To, I don't think she's on a path to becoming any kind of hero. She's just trying to survive. <laughs> it's like right, she gets thrown right. into a fantastic situation where it's like, no, I'm not trying to like. Th this is not me becoming a hero. This is me not trying to die. Which you know, if you've seen the movie, um, she fails at. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I was gonna say like I was trying to think of it as Todd was saying that I was like, huh, I never thought of it that way. But I was like, I know there's, I don't remember all the steps, but I was like, I know there's the call to action. Okay, fair enough. The call to action is is you fucked up and somebody cursed you. I guess there's the the, like the call third, to you refuse it. And I was yeah, like, there's well, the yeah, call to adventure. Want it, but, I mean, tough shit. There's the refusal <laughs> of the call. I don't remember the rest of them, but yeah, it's yeah. been a while. <laughs> college was a long time ago i know but i was just thinking about it. i was like well she's kind of she's just kind of fucked if she does it like, right yeah she's damned if you do damned if you don't kind of that's where she's at <laughs> well as they wrote the story sam and ivan contemplated who or what would be the supernatural tormentor of their protagonist and they chose to use a mythical beast uh a demon named lamia or the lamia as their villain so I was really curious about this, about the Lamia, because I'm like, all right, does this is he basing this on mythology or anything? Uh, are there any historical origins of it? Or is this just something that Sam and Ivan made up? As it turns out, 
that there have been a lot of mythical figures with the name of Lamia in various cultures over the centuries. Uh, the most well-known is probably the Lamia from Greek mythology, who was this beautiful queen who had a, an affair with Zeus, which led Zeus's wife Hera to rob Lamia of her children, which drove Lamia insane. And then uh, she became a cannibal and she like become becomes this like monster that snatches up and eats children, uh, you know, and nice. due to her cruel acts, her physical appearance changed to become ugly and monstrous. And she's often portrayed as a snake like or uh, or like a half serpent, half woman type creature. And roll for initiative. This sounds like <laughs> something straight out of D and D. To be fair, between, this was around a long time before D and D was right, so. <laughs> right. But like between the hero's journey uh, discussion we just had and uh, all of this stuff from Greek mythology, like that completely sets up an adventure for for D and D. And it's oh, I'm, I'm the the homebrew stuff is starting to brew in my head. So I'll see what. Uh, what lies ahead for my adventures? <laughs> I don't recall like how how often or if ever the Lamia was used like before this, but I mean I'm sure it has been in like pop culture and like movies or something. But I know like when I was looking up stuff about it, it's like there's pictures of them that are nice ladies with with their boobies hanging out and not goats. That's how they get you. So, <laughs> but I remember there was an episode oh, that old, of Supernatural. That old <laughs> there was an episode of Supernatural, like a, a couple of seasons, like after this movie came out. And I remember at one moment, like there's just a side story where they're fighting. They're like, what is this? It's a freaking lavia. They gotta have watched Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> other cultural depictions of it show the Lamia as a type of vampire or succubus, other as a cannibalistic ogre. Uh, in Bulgaria, uh, the Lamia is a type of dragon. Uh, and in some depictions, the Lamia is shown as a half-human, half-goat creature. The version of the Lamia that the Raimi brothers imagined is mostly one of their own creation. I mean, they, they, they took the half-goat creature kind of idea to mind, but... Uh, they pretty much made it all up. But one thing that many of the Lamia legends have in common is that the Lamia is a demon that, when awoken in anger, drags its, victim, its victims down to hell screaming. In fact, let me read this little quote here from Mr. Sam Raimi. He says, uh, he's talking about writing the script and... You know, he's saying that we basically we did the uh, my, we didn't do a lot of research on this this because we were basically making it up. But they did a minor amount of research about the Lamia once they came up with that. Well, they basically realized that there were all these different creatures named Lamia under different cultures. So he's thinking, well, that's very interesting that they all have the same name, but they're all different. He says, "quote Maybe they're just telling different stories about the same thing. Maybe we can tell our own story about the demon and call it the Lamia." What we really have at the core here is a timeless story concept that was used in this film, along with many others, the idea of a character that commits a sin of greed and has to pay the terrible price for it. It's a morality tale that many churches have told throughout the ages, so it's tried and true. Oh, it's a tried and true old horror story in a book, basically. And that's what he's going for here. He's just telling that classic morality tale. He, he found out there's a demon named Lamia. Sure. Why can't ours be called that too? That's basically where it came from. Nice. He gives it a nice, like there's a nice little design for it, like in the shadows. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's like the first cousin to a deadite by the time it like inhabits. Someone. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the Raimi's crafted the story so that Christine appears in nearly every scene after the film's cold open. The story never wavers from her point of view. Uh, it takes the audience along on her journey with her. This is basically a haunted house ride, and Christine is the vessel. Like she's taking you along this the spook house, the spooka blast ride. 
Mm-hmm. I really noticed that this time too. That's that's cool. I yeah. love that it is just her POV pretty it's much. It's just her. Almost like the Lamia is being very polite and not trying to like the Lamia Christine is cursed. Nobody around her is cursed. She is cursed. So it's all the Lamia only attacks her when she's alone, so that there's like no collateral damage. It's very considerate for a yeah. Well, except <laughs> when it starts fucking with her brain when she's at the uncomfortable dinner with uh Clay's parents. It still doesn't harm them at all. Still she's still the only one that sees anything. Oh, yeah. She I just, just looks like a crazy scene. person to I, know. I hate that scene. It makes me well, it's so very uncomfortable. Un- it's very uncomfortable as it's supposed to be. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I also love the uh I, I guess this is movie discussion later, but uh, just the fact that the Lamia is not also not preoccupied with worldly matters, whereas mm-hmm. like Christine's making decisions based on stuff going on in her personal life. The right. Lamia like gives no shits about nope, anything else care. except my job is to to get you is to torture you and then eventually drag you to hell. And that's yep. all I care <laughs> about, even when they're yep. at the seance and like trying to make a deal with it. It's just like, nope, nope, not going to have it. I just this is what Here's I the do. Deal. This is the contract. Three days of me fucking with you, and then you're off to hell. That's what that's what it is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but as he's always done, Raimi looked to the films of the past for inspiration. Uh, specifically, in the case of Drag Me to Hell, Raimi took plot elements from Jacques Tourneau's uh, 1957 film, Night of the Demon. Uh, that film deals with a curse that's placed on a skeptic who refuses to halt an investigation into a devil-worshipping cult. And this curse, which involves a parchment that has to be passed to the victim, that probably sounds familiar, conjures up a demon a demon that will increasingly haunt the man for two weeks before showing up to claim his prey or rather to drag him to hell well she got off easy yeah yeah well i don't know that she got off easy uh uh, but Raimi does speed up the process uh only giving christine three days notice and a much quicker build up uh or as the writer i found this really great article in uh Asheville, North Carolina's alternative arts paper, Mountain Express. Uh, This was a a review written in 2009 when this uh, movie came out. By a hippie. Most likely. (laughs) (laughs) They they said, think of this as Night of the Demon on amphetamines as reimagined by the Three Stooges. Yeah. And there there you go. Yeah, that's (laughs) That's not too far off. (laughs) Sounds like that Edgar Wright description earlier. (laughs) Well, once they had completed the first draft, Raimi was ready to make the film. uh, And this was going to be his next project after The Gift. Uh, that was the initial plan. But other projects came steam, uh, other projects <laughs> being you know, Spider-Man, uh, which put Drag Me to Hell on hold. And with the Spider-Man trilogy becoming a nearly decade-long endeavor for Raimi, there just wasn't an opportunity to give Drag Me to Hell the attention it needed until 2007 when Ghost House Pictures, along with producers Rob Tapert and Grant Curtis, signed on to finance the film. I think now's the time to address the elephant in the room with the Sam oh. Raimi series. Okay. It's just, you keep calling this guy Rob Tapert. And I've been wavering between Rob Tapper and Rob Tapert throughout the series Uh because I'm worried I'm saying it wrong. And I I just thought I might have missed something. But with the completion of this film, after countless hours of special features and interviews, I can, with 100% certainty, say I have never heard anybody but you refer to this guy as Rob Tapert. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say his name out loud or not paid attention to it. That's what he's happens been when on I like just... special features and like I've yeah. heard people mention or like Sam mention him and stuff. It is Rob Tappert. It's Tappert. That just doesn't sound right to me. I think they're saying it wrong. 
<laughs> Rob, if you're Rob, we know you're listening. If you wouldn't mind reaching what out, if to us, Ta- what if it was Rob Tape? What if it was actually Rob Tape Hair and everyone said it wrong? The whole time? <laughs> it's like even my best friends don't know. It's driven, it's driving me nuts my whole life. <laughs> so it's Tappert, Rob Tappert. You could have told me this on Evil Dead episode one. I didn't want to question you. And <laughs> you can always question me. <laughs> What happens when you do most of your research just by reading though? Todd does enough questioning for everybody at the early processes of this, so I just stay out <laughs> of it. <laughs> well, see, Justin is so convincing as a film historian. I thought, oh my God, I've been pronouncing Rob Tapert's name incorrectly all these years. You I've just said pronounced... it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> well, that's what that was in my head of like, oh, I always thought it was Tapert. It must be Tapert. Okay. So you had you had even more connection to it because I have not been saying his name all these years. I didn't know who the guy was before this series, I don't think. <laughs> well, okay. I mentioned Ghost House Pictures. B. So let's I want to talk for just briefly about Ghost House Pictures because this is kind of an important milestone in Raimi's career and one that we I don't think we just need to slide past. So Ghost House Pictures is a production company. It's still around. It was founded by Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert in 2002 uh, with the intent to produce mid-budget, high-concept horror films. That's all they produce are horror movies. The first film that they produced was 2004's The Grudge, directed by Takashi Shimizu. It was a remake of Shimizu's own seminal J-horror film from a couple of years earlier in 2002. The Grudge remake made over $187 million at the box office on a budget of only $10 million. So that's a pretty rousing success for a brand new production company as a side note not a success with justin bishop uh yeah i don't care for it um it's although i will say the 2004 one is way better than the 2021 the 2021 (laughs) is is. a fucking abomination (laughs) that that sam raimi should be ashamed to have his name attached to it is really (laughs) weird to think about him being attached to to that well even any of them really but it's 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 weird yeah it's it's awful Uh, Well, over the course of the next few years, they continued to produce modestly budgeted horror films with decent success, although none were quite as successful as The Grudge. Uh, But they followed that film up with Stephen K's Boogeyman in 2005. Remember that one? Uh, And then a sequel to The Grudge in 2006 and The Pang Brothers, The Messengers, and then David Slade's 30 Days of Night in 2007, which is one Mm -hmm. that I like a lot. I did like that uh, comic book miniseries from IDW. Yeah, it's yeah. a good one. You know what else? Uh they did that one with uh the the girl in is like in New Orleans, Skeleton Key. The Skeleton oh, Key. Yeah. Yeah. Skeleton yeah. Key. Yeah. With was it Kate Hudson in that? I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It yeah. just came to me as we're seeing. I remember seeing the ghost house logo. It's a great logo. Yeah. That skull. Yeah. Well, in 2008, they also introduced Ghost House Underground, which is a home video imprint that allowed them to release low-budget horror films direct to the DVD market. Um, I don't know if you saw any of those. I remember one being really good called Dance of the Dead. That was like uh, it was a zombie movie set at a high school prom. That was really fun, uh, but I haven't seen a lot of them. I don't think that Ghost House Underground lasted too long. Mm. Uh, well, but it was only natural, you know that. With Raimi's own return to horror, Ghost House Pictures would be the company to finance it. Remember when he was writing the script, he thought, hey, you know what? I've got a horror production company now. Maybe we should just produce my own (laughs) script here. So they did. Ghost House signed on to produce it. And it wouldn't be long before Universal had agreed to distribute the film domestically, while Mandate Pictures, who had a history of working with Ghost House, would handle the majority of the film's international distribution. So does that mean that the Lamia is a Universal monster? Universal's just distributing it. They're not producing it. 
okay. I mean, because uh, I mean, okay. All right, I'll I'll leave it there. I don't think it can be a I don't think it can be a Universal <laughs> monster if if Universal didn't fund produce the it. film. They didn't produce the film. All yeah, they're doing they is sending it out to theaters and making money off of it. I okay. try to pick up the slack on uh, that universal dark what yeah, world or yeah. whatever you know, i'm gonna get this i'm gonna get yeah, i'm gonna make universe. it happen guys we're gonna yeah we're well gonna good luck with that because tom cruise couldn't make it happen so good luck <laughs> yeah that's true that's and there's true. like very little that guy fails at so yeah kind of weird yeah. well with the script in place and the project greenlit Raimi began the casting process for the film and the first order of business was finding someone to fill the main role of christine uh, Elliot Page was actually originally cast in the role. This would have been this right around the time of Juno or a little bit after, a few years after Juno. But they had to drop out of this due to scheduling issues involving a Screen Actors Guild strike. So basically, oh. the filmmakers were racing to start the production in order to accommodate Page's schedule. Uh, but like so many other productions that were trying to start before the impending SAG strike, date the, the the film just needed more time so the start of production had to be pushed back which did not allow page to take the job basically if they could have had the movie ready to go before the strike then page would have started in it but because of the strike and because they still had pre-production and script stuff to work on it kind of clashed with when that strike was happening by the time the strike was over page had moved on to whatever else they were contracted for down the line Juno was 2007. So, yeah, so it was right before this. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, the part would eventually go to an actress named Allison Lohman. Uh, Lohman's, uh, this is an interesting story, I think. I, and I know, Gary, you, you mentioned last week that you were curious about what has happened to her. We'll get to that in a minute, I'm sure. But she had been a stage actor for much of her childhood and, and through her teenage years before moving to Los Angeles in 1997 at the age of 18. She moved to L.A. to pursue an acting career. And she began, as many actors do, with minor roles in indie films and in B-movies. But it was her casting in a movie called White Oleander alongside Michelle Pfeiffer, Robin Wright, and Renee Zellweger that really got her noticed. I mean, she's right there on the poster alongside the three of them. Uh, yeah. She plays Michelle Pfeiffer's daughter in the movie. Uh, she earned a lot of praise for that role, with the New York Times calling her work the year's most auspicious screen acting debut. She followed that up with more critical acclaim for her roles in Tim Burton's Big Fish and Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men. And then after that, she appeared in a couple of critical flops, kind of forgettable things. You know, she also starred in the drama Flicka in 2006, which I think is about a horse, if I remember <laughs> right. Yeah. And then Things We Lost in the Fire in 2007, both of which received generally positive reviews. And then in 2009, she had a role in the film Gamer starring Gerard Butler and directed by the team of Mark Neveldine and Brian Taylor, the guys who did the Crank movies. Did you guys mm -hmm. ever seen? See, yeah uh, uh, gamer i thought it was pretty fun I, yeah, I it was it. fun it has like, dexter in it and, yeah uh, he plays the bad guy oh, in yeah, it yeah it's a yeah, fun yeah. little movie i mean it's very dumb yeah, i mean there's like there's the part where he controls their bodies and does like a whole dance number at yeah the end. It's, it's fun like it's, uh it's not like a great movie but if you like the energy of the crank movies i think you would like it mm. well she actually ended up marrying mark Neveldine that same year and the couple now have three children together she uh yeah it just seems like uh she's happy to be a mom yeah, yeah i mean yeah really when you when you read interviews with like hey what happened to allison loman why did she drop off the face of the earth uh after this movie it's because she wanted to be a mom and a wife and is happy yeah i said so. i yeah. said that i said that where i feel like it might have sounded disparaging and i did not mean it that way props to her for being no able she to just says away. hey i i always wanted to be a mother and that's what she focuses on she likes the idea of walking down the street and not being recognized 
So, you know, she seems to be happy doing so. Her, she, I mean, she's still connected to the movie business because her husband is still making movies yeah. she, regularly. After this movie, she only did a, a few things and it was all stuff that her husband she's popped had, up in like small roles in his movies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she is also like you can find her. She's on like Instagram and Twitter and everywhere. She's uh, yeah. she does acting classes like she, yeah, teaches, she teaches online. I tried to book one today just to see because yeah. I was you? curious. And uh, a lot of spots were booked, but there was an open spot. $400 an hour. So wow. good for I, her. Uh, I, yeah. I, I did not. Uh, you didn't do it. Through it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so. I, I found her on Instagram and it's uh, it's interesting because, I mean, yeah, if you didn't know and if she didn't have that in her bio, you'd think, okay, here's some lady with her and her kids and her yeah. and her husband. And yeah. yeah. And I'm not she's saying she's living, not worth she's, $400. She's living, I, she's living her life. And that's, that's great. You, Gary, you just don't have I you just don't have that kind of commitment to a cinema shock, is what you're saying. Well, we're not. This is the real <laughs> me on cinema shock. There's no acting involved. There's here. no I'm, acting. This is I'm this just is this shitty all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you guys think of Loman's work here in the movie and in, in Drag Me to Hell? I think it's really solid. I mean, you know, it, she she's clearly not stupid. So and Sam Raimi had gained enough of a reputation that i imagine she did her homework uh and... she didn't really know what she was getting into when she signed up for this. okay fair enough <laughs> but i mean but she, she was game it... for it all yeah she's game for it all and you can see that there's kind of there's definitely a level of commitment on all of this stuff that i think she's not winking at the camera but it's kind of like she knows that this is going to come off slightly cartoony at least a little bit I don't and, think she plays it up like it's a comedy, though. I think that's no, part of yeah, what works yeah, about it. She, she plays it up play like, it like it's, it's serious. a comedy. She plays it uh, for uh, for real. And uh, I actually just had a conversation with um, my niece, Professor Caroline Davis, uh, professor of theater at Furman University. We discussed um, the life of Susan Oliver and talking about the differences between comedy and drama. And it's kind of the stuff that's comedy is usually a comedy to everybody except who it's actually happening to. Yeah. And I feel like with Sam Raimi stuff, we get a lot of laughs, but the only person that's not laughing is the person that it's happening to. The one and moment of I, comedy, I think that she gets, that she does really well is when she says, I had a cat, you know how they can be. And Justin Long's like, what do you, what do you mean? You have, you have a cat, right? You, you and she has this look in her eyes where she's kind of like looking back and forth. Yeah, and it's, yeah. It's, it's very subtle, but it's very funny. Yeah. I, I read like stuff with her that said she was like preparing for this movie. Like, you know, like she was watching horror classics, like every yeah. day she said she was like, turn off the lights and watch the shining and all this. So maybe she didn't really realize what she was getting into, but I will say like, I mean, the reason I was curious about her is I know watching this, I feel like there's particular people that would work in these kind of Sam Raimi's roles like you can imagine Bruce Campbell but you can't imagine I don't know Tom Cruise pulling it off and right it mm. feels like Allison was built for this like it just she, seems like she this is perfect for her well she's got a really great like girl next door quality to her like she's pretty yeah. but she's like she feels like a real person mm -hmm. she feels like the pretty bank teller you see when you go you know deposit your paycheck or whatever right mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't feel like a movie star like type girl so it makes like when you're when you're watching her in the film it makes these things feel like they're happening to a real person mm -hmm. uh, i think there are moments where she doesn't quite pull off some of the things like when she's trying when she sort of turns like where she's trying to be a badass towards the end she doesn't there's some dialogue she doesn't quite pull off like when she's in the car saying what does she say like 
I'm going to get some. I'm going to get some. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, I actually little... love that. <laughs> I love that. And it reminds you of Ash because he's like, come get some. You know, Right, yeah, but she's no Bruce Campbell. <laughs> well, she's not, but I, I think she does it in like a, I don't know, it's a cuter way, which you can imagine. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like a cute girl, girl trying like... to be a badass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, I don't know. But there's moments of like when she's fight, fighting uh, uh, Mrs. Ganesh. Yeah, she's like, I beat you, you stupid bitch. Yeah, <laughs> like just the way she says that stuff. I love it. It's very funny. But but yeah, she I think she's fun in it. And man, Sam Raimi puts her through it. Like yes. she does a lot of her own stunts. Uh, even when she's flying around upside down in the room when the Lamia is attacking her, you know, she's being if you watch the behind the scenes, she's being strung from her foot by a wire, being flung all around this room. I don't think it's her that like flies through the air and breaks the like the chest of drawers or whatever it is the armoire mm -hmm. uh but the rest of that when you see her flying around that's her i mean that's her every time that you i mean most of the attacks on her are, are in close-up where you know mrs ganush is all up in her face so there's no way to really fake that with a stunt double or anything it's all it's all her and the fact that she was willing to do that says a lot about her i think yeah she was i mean you see interviews with uh Ramey and he he is constantly on about her uh that she was willing to do whatever that she yeah. wanted to do her own stunts and be a part of that so yeah i mean in the scene where she fights uh, mrs ganush in the car uh, which we'll talk about here in a second she uh her and and the actress that played uh, mrs ganush they told each other hey because the camera is going to be so close to us we actually have to hurt each other like you can't fake hitting each other when you're that close so they they like just went for it well, cast in the role of clay christine's supportive but skeptical boyfriend was a, a modern day scream queen by the name of Justin Long. <laughs> and sorry, Todd, but Long's role in Galaxy Quest does not count as a Star Trek role. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Star Trek adjacent. <laughs> that was his first movie, by the way. Did you know that Galaxy Quest was his first Galaxy movie? Galaxy Quest yeah. was? I thought, it, yeah. I, I thought it had to be that or Dodgeball. I couldn't remember which came yeah, first. Yeah, Galaxy so. Quest was first. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. He did say that this character reminded him of his father. He said, uh, my dad's a philosophy professor. He's very rational, very stoic and logical. He comes from the school of thought that there's an explanation for everything. So I had to tap into somebody who is a bit more right-brained in their thinking. I am not like that. I am the first to believe anything. Nessie, Bigfoot, <laughs> ghosts, there's supernatural shit all around me all the time. I think he adds a lot to the story, honestly. he, um, His character... Like uh, Justin Long, I mean, adds a lot to the story just by being Justin Long because he is inherently likable that mm -hmm. you're like you're immediately like on his side, even when he's being skeptical. He's very charming and you almost need that in this movie just because you need something to kind of ground you after all the horrible shit you see happen to Christine. Right, Brother doesn't right. get enough credit, man. He's he's good. He he's really great, is, man. He's a good actor. And, he uh, is. And uh, I mean, Barbarian, he plays a real douchebag and you still kind of like him. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he is a horrible human being and Barbarian, but you still are like kind of rooting for him just because it's Justin Long, you know? Yeah, Justin uh, mentioned scream queen i mean he's in this and like cheapers creepers tusk yeah. tusk afterlife yeah uh, he's in, he is our he is our modern day screen scream queen justin yeah. long congratulations justin <laughs> i also he, he was also the uh the mac and i think he had all apple stuff that's funny well in the crucial role of mrs ganish Ramey cast a stage actress named Lorna Raver, 
Uh, Raver was born in York, Pennsylvania. She was actually raised in the Pennsylvania Dutch community. And she acted on stage in Pennsylvania before moving to New York. Uh, she appeared in several off-Broadway shows while she was there. She also spent several years as a stage actress in Chicago before heading to Los Angeles, where she continued to work mostly on stage. But then she would also regularly appear in guest roles and TV shows. Uh, in 2006, she actually began appearing in a recurring role on The Young and the Restless. It lasted a long time. Uh, but she hasn't been in a whole lot of uh, feature-length films. Her first one was actually in 1996, a movie called Freeway, which is incredible, by the way. I watched it last week. I, I don't know, know that I had ever seen it. Highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Nice. Uh, and then Drag Me to Hell, which was 13 years after Freeway, by the way, was only her third film and by far her most significant role. Because like in Freeway, she plays a judge in one scene. So it's like it's a very small like walk on role. And she got this part through uh, just the traditional audition process. Uh, when she auditioned, uh, she had only a certain pages of the script, you know, where she had dialogue. I think she might have had the... Uh, the bank scene, you know, Mrs. Ganush's first scene in the film, uh, which that's kind of typical protocol when you're auditioning. They're not necessarily going to give you the whole script. Like if you're Tom Cruise, I, mean, I don't know why we keep bringing up Tom Cruise on this episode, but <laughs> if you're Tom Cruise, they're going to send you the whole script to kind of get you to, to sell. But if you're somebody who's fighting to get this role, they're going to send you the script pages that you need. So she read just, you know, the scene of Mrs. Ganush trying to get this girl to convince this girl to let her keep her house that's all she really had so she had no idea what she was getting into uh she'd say quote all i had read was about a little old lady coming into the bank because they were closing down her house it was only later that i saw the whole script and said oh my <laughs> she's like what have i gotten myself into and i've seen variations of that that quote i've seen her say variations of that in like four different interviews where she's just like I didn't know what this was, <laughs> I, but she had a fun time and she, she is great in the film. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. So to prepare for the role, she met with a Hungarian dialect coach. Uh, and she even asked the coach to translate portions of the script into Hungarian. She wanted to have some Hungarian phrasing. And then later during filming, she offered to use some of those words, some of those Hungarian words. Uh, if you watch some of the behind the scenes stuff, there's a great moment where she is during the car attack scene and she turns to Raimi from inside the car and she's like, there's a Hungarian word for bitch that I could use here. <laughs> and she tells Raimi what the word is and he, his face just lights up, just a big, big kid. And he's just like, yes, let's do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I was reading somewhere that like a lot of what she says are like variations of bitch and witch. Dilip <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rao, who was cast as Ram Joss, it's the, uh, the psychic, the seer. Uh, he was a relative newcomer at the time. In fact, I looked up his IMDb and his first on-screen credit was in 2002. He was on Jeopardy as a contestant on two episodes and he won $34,000. Uh, what <laughs> is, holy shit, that's awesome. <laughs> fun. I want to try to find his episodes. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, Drag Me to Hell was actually his first film, although he has gone on to appear in a couple of other movies you might have heard of. Um, there's one called Inception uh, and there's one called, I think it's Avatar that you might have heard of <laughs> he's also an avatar too if you've seen that uh it's a much smaller role in that one but he does appear there but i like him i think he's really he yeah. has, it's a good presence in this movie very yeah, he's yeah. he's he's definitely likable just like you were talking about with long like there's something he seems smart and just friendly 
He seems very wise. Yeah. yeah. Like the wise little, beyond little, his years. The little back and forth that he has with Justin Long's character about the different philosophers. About Carl Young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I good. really love that. That's really great. <laughs> and for the role of the seer, Sean Sandina, the filmmakers cast a celebrated Mexican actress named Adriana Barasa. Uh, Barasa first came to the attention of most American audiences in a movie in 2000 that was directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Inuratu called Amores Peros. Really great movie. If you have not seen it, I would recommend it. Prepare to be sad, uh, but it's a really good movie. Uh, then Inuratu cast her again in his 2006 film Babel, for which she received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. She is nice. a, a really wonderful actress. Uh, other actors who appear in significant roles in the film included David Paymer as Christine's boss, Mr. Jax, uh, Reggie Lee as Stu Rubin, which is Christine's rival co-worker, uh, Molly Cheek as Clay's mother, Trudy, and Chelsea Ross, who had also appeared in Raimi's A Simple Plan. He plays the, the small town sheriff in that. Uh, he plays Clay's father, Leonard, here. Nice. So um, I guess now it's time to ask Todd, who are you tracking with this week? Oh, we got quite a few folks. Uh, so I've tried to group these together so they uh, make some sort of sense here. So I'll try to hit them all really quick. We got Kevin Foster as Milos, and that's the Sears uh, assistant who actually ends up getting, getting possessed, possessed and at one point. Dancing yeah, yeah. over the fire. Yeah. Yeah. He was which he's also in, a stuntman, I believe, uh, which yeah, is why they cast him in that role. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he was in an episode of Enterprise uh, in season four, which is a really great season. Uh, Cold Station Twelve. We have Leah Johnson as the waitress there in the diner. She was actually part of Star Trek Phase Two, which was kind of a more successful fan-driven series. Is um, she the one that in the in the diner that bitches at uh, Allison Loman for only drinking coffee? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's her. her. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then we keep got, the coffee uh, covered, bitch. Or I'll give you a tip you won't forget. <laughs> uh, also in the diner, uh, as part of the old couple, we have Irene Rossine. Uh, she was in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek as one of the Vulcan elders. And also in that same movie is Reggie Lee, who plays uh, Stu Rubin here, Christine's rival co-worker. But in uh, Star Trek, he's the Kobayashi Maru test administrator. Wow. It's uh, pretty much just one sec, uh, one line on screen. But Real yeah. Quick, he- the, the, the old couple at the diner, I just have to mention this because this mm-hmm. I was watching it this time. This, this scene fucked me up a little bit because yeah. <laughs> she's trying to think of who she's going to give this curse button to right uh-huh. and she looked to this old couple thinking oh this guy's clearly on death's door he's like you know sucking down oxygen he's got an oxygen tank so mm-hmm. i'm just gonna i guess she's thinking i'm just gonna give it to him because he's gonna die soon anyway so i might as well give it to someone who's gonna die but no you're not just killing the guy you're damning his soul to hell, hell that is yeah. fucked up christine yeah. <laughs> I, like, I, I thought of that too and and, and it is yeah he's de- she's definitely looking at him and thinking because at first she the 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 wife is not there, so it's just right. like he's old and alone and dying, mm-hmm. and I guess she must. The only way to play that off without her seeming like a real prick is that <laughs> she's just like, oh, he's gonna die soon anyway, and right. I'll just help him along. But he might not be going to hell. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> You're damning his soul. <laughs> right. Anyway, sorry, Todd. I just had to get that off my chest. No, no, <laughs> yeah, that, no. It's, it makes total sense. Uh, uh, so, continue. And then she pulls folks. back off Stu. Of all people. I know. So, who deserves yeah. it? Let's be honest. Oh, man. 
Uh, Sorry, a couple Todd. other folks from the bank. We've got Bill E. Rogers is one of the security guards. He was in six episodes of Next Gen as a ops division officer. It was uncredited, basically a background player. And then we've got uh, David Pamer as Mr. Jax, Christine's boss. He is actually Picard's doctor in Star Trek Picard. We see him in season one, episode two, which was a bit, a bit of a controversy for some of the fans going, uh, where's Beverly Crusher? Uh, but anyways, that's a different podcast. Uh, so then uh, last but not least, we've got Lorna Raver as Mrs. Ganush. Uh, she was in Star Trek Voyager season seven, episode 18, Q2, which was directed by LeVar Burton. She plays the Q judge. Now, a little fun fact about this episode. This is the one where Q finds uh, Catherine Janeway and Q has just actually had a son and his son is really rebellious and he hopes Catherine Janeway can kind of help him uh, learn responsibility and learn some compassion. The actor that plays Q2 is John Delancey's real life son, Keegan Delancey. Huh. So that was a fun thing. Uh, so that's everybody. And that's everybody in Star Trek. <laughs> so one thing really quick before we move on is I was really surprised uh, Chelsea Ross, uh, who plays... Um, Justin Long's characters, Clay, his dad, mm-hmm. I thought he had been in, he's a character actor. So you yeah, yeah. have seen him in everything, yeah. but I was dead certain that he had been in Star Trek. I thought like a captain or an admiral scientist, something, Nothing, but huh? no, but he has been in two of our other series. He was in a uh, basic instinct in the Paul Verhoeven series and the last boy scout, our Shane black series. Oh, so, wow. How about yeah. that? This is the this is the hat trick for old uh, Chelsea Ross. <laughs> yeah, my favorite part of the Star Trek series is, or that you you give it those names, is that there are some people probably listening that are like, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah," and then some people are like, "What the fuck, man?" The I am there. Are, there are some Trek. people hitting that like on your podcast app where it, like skips forward thirty yeah. seconds. They're just like, "Okay, nope, he's still talking." Like like what I do when ads come up on podcasts, uh, just click through until. And then, so, I mean, not that I would ever do that during your segment. I, I will say I did get a <laughs> message uh, a couple of weeks ago saying, what's the name of Todd's podcast again? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a podcast you, available now, wherever you get your podcasts. There you go. I told him <laughs> I'm not saying it. I'm not sponsoring that podcast. <laughs> he doesn't pay me to promote his podcast. <laughs> well, Drag Me to Hell began shooting on location in Tarzana, California. The shoot began, first place they shot was in a vacant former bank that was redressed to become the Wilshire Pacific Bank, courtesy of production designer Steve Sacklid, who'd also collaborated with Raimi on Spider-Man 2. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, just to sort of cap it off again here, a lot of the folks uh, in the cast maybe weren't in Star Trek, but as I was going through every, all of them, as I do every every time, mm-hmm. um, almost all of them were at least in uh, at least in a Spider-Man movie or two. Yeah. And it was kind of nice to see that he was just kind of bringing everybody back. Yeah. Steve Sacklett also um, I mean, he worked on I think he did some work on The Quick and the Dead. I don't know if he was a production designer or an art director on that one, mm-hmm. uh, but he's also going to work with we're going to talk about this guy in a few months. But um David Fincher. I think he worked on the game. And I watched a movie last night, actually, or I, I rather I put on a movie as I was falling asleep last night that he had a credit on along with another guy behind the scenes on on this movie and that is austin powers international man of mystery really was the production designer <laughs> wow. on that one yeah, Don't you yeah love so those he, random ones that pop up 
Yeah. I was the <laughs> wife was watching because as we're taping this, it's just after Christmas. What was it the other? Oh, it was uh Love Actually. She was watching oh. Love Actually and it started coming on. And all of a sudden on the screen popped up director of photography and it was that son of a bitch dean cudney <laughs> <laughs> really dean? it's funny the more you talk about these what what uh what are referred to as below the line uh guy like technicians on movies like not your directors and not your writers not your actors you start talking about the, the ones below the line the production designers the art directors the costume designers you will start seeing names you recognize pop up over and over and over again in mm-hmm. fact that brings me to my next point, because in addition to uh, to Steve Sacklad, Raimi's production team on this film included director of photographer Peter Deming, who had worked with Raimi on Evil Dead 2, also the director of photography on Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Nice. <laughs> I love this crossover. <laughs> and uh, as well as visual effects supervisor Bruce Jones. Now, when he was shooting Drag Me to Hell, uh, Peter Deming, he made the choice to use realistic lighting in the film. Raimi's shot choices are often highly stylized, although th- less so here than in like Army of Darkness or Darkman. But Deming and Raimi wanted the film to be firmly set in the real world, while the world of su- the supernatural slowly creeps into kind of Christine's world. Mm. And as you watch the film, you'll actually notice that the lighting progressively gets darker as Christine is drawn further into her battle with the Lamia. Uh, And then Deming would also use, in some scenes, uh, he'd use existing light sources when shooting on location, which is highly unusual in this type of film. Uh, But it does give the film an odd color scheme that contributes to the film's heightened sense of reality. Uh, For instance, the most obvious scene where you can notice this is in the parking garage scene where Christine is attacked by Mrs. Ganush. In that, the they're using the real fluorescent lights that because they're in this one, they're shooting in an actual parking garage. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're shooting an, on set on a stage. Sometimes they're shooting in actual locations like the bank in the parking garage. But the fluorescent lights give off this greenish bluish hue. Like if you look at Christine's face, it's got a very odd uh, like color to it. Mm-hmm. Now, normally a director of photography would replace those fluorescent lights with movie lights with corrected lighting but Deming and Rainey they they made the deliberate choice to use unconventional lighting sources uh because this is after all this is the moment this scene is Christine's entry into the world of the curse that's going to turn her life upside down so it's yeah. weird weird things are afoot this car scene by the way i feel like this is like the centerpiece of the film this is one of the first sequences that people think about when they're discussing drag me to hell. Uh, when I think about drag me to hell, I immediately think of the car scene and yeah. Raimi knew that it needed to be memorable because everything that happens to Christine afterwards is a direct result of this scene. Uh, but shooting in tight spaces like a car, especially when you want the kinds of shots and camera angles that Raimi wanted uh, was going to be incredibly difficult. So to pull it off, Raimi's crew created a puzzle car, uh, one that could be pulled apart and reconfigured as needed in order to get these shots. So their design allowed for the front engine compartment and the back trunk, as well as all four sides and doors to come away from the car. Uh, The roof could come off in two different directions. It could come off front to back or side to side, uh, allowing the filmmakers to have a lot of freedom while shooting in a tight space. It's really fun to watch how they got these shots. Sometimes I come off in two different directions. I, you should have that checked out. I, 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 I probably need, I probably need to go to the doctor. Yeah, you should go to the hospital right now. <laughs> that is weird. Uh, they call this car the 1973 Lament Configuration. 
That would have been, <laughs> been good. <laughs> that would have been good. You notice Mrs. Gandush's car, by the way. Oh yeah, uh, yes. I was. That, I was the gonna classic. definitely mention the classic. Yeah, it gets yeah. probably the most screen. Well, besides like the first in Evil the Evil Dead, Dead, Dead movies. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, gets a. Lot, I mean, it gets a good bit of screen time in Dark Man and um and Spider Man. Honestly, yeah, yeah Spider Man for sure. Okay, yeah, well, Dad has it. Yep. Let's talk about that car fight for a minute because this is so good. A, it's a great <laughs> it is, scene. It is the first drop on the roller coaster that is this movie. <laughs> it is. You're that's a good that's an excellent way to describe it I think. You're absolutely right. Like and this scene I think is the perfect example of why Raimi is so good at what he does because this scene exemplifies what a spooka blast film is. Mm. Uh, and really quick because we have mentioned it several times i think we mentioned it way back in the first episode of the series but the term spooka blast <laughs> so that people don't think we're crazy what this where, where this term comes from this is one that was coined by Raimi when he was promoting drag me to hell uh as far as i've been able to find the first recorded use of the term was in an interview with mtv news uh just a few months before drag me to hell came out uh and in describing the film he said quote this film is trying to be like a spooka blast, which is those cheesy carnival rides you get on and you're jerked around in the darkness wondering if a skeleton will pop out. Basically, they were asking him if we're going to see hell in the film. And he goes on to say, like, well, you're asking me if a skeleton's going to pop out. And I'm not, I want to say no comment. <laughs> <laughs> but in short, a spooka blast is a movie that will make you laugh. Uh, you might get scared by a jump scare now and then, but it's not like, it's not scary. It's not the type of scary that's trying to give you nightmares. You know, mm. it's just going to be a fun time, like a roller coaster, like a carnival ride, you know, like those spook houses at, at the state fair. The, it's just pure entertainment. That's what it is. Anyways, back to that car scene, though. So this, I think, is kind of the perfect combination of laughs and scares because you've got moments like Mrs. Ganush's reveal in the back seat. Like oh. when, when the camera follows and she's in the shadows and kind of leans forward, that is pure horror. That's a yes. scary shot. It really is. It's well, because I, it's a I great thought, shot. I initially thought it was the back of Christine's head mm -hmm. and something was going to, and then and the, the way she leans and, into the light. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he tricks you by having you follow the handkerchief. Yeah. Your eyes following that. And then you realize, oh, there's somebody sitting there. <laughs> yeah. And then she leans forward with that fucked up eye. And it's like, oh, it's great. That's oh. a, it's a scary shot. But then yeah. you've got like the stapler attack, which is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got <laughs> Mrs. Ganush, like her face hitting the, the dash and her dentures flying out. And oh. it's funny and gross. And yeah. all at the same time, it's like, it's just, this scene has everything that you want from Sam Raimi in a tight little compartment, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I love it like, because never has been gubbed by an old person been more dude, frightening. Dude, that, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't think of a situation where being gummed by an old person would not be frightening. <laughs> you don't know what kind of porn I watch. I mean, <laughs> uh, but th well, that, that seems a good example because being in that scene, like if you were in Christine's place, that would be terrifying. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But watching it, from uh, your perspective, from the audience's perspective, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> like watching her gum on her face. <laughs> it's great. And that was not faked, by the way. They really did that. Like there are moments where they use puppets for Mrs. Ganoush. Yeah. But in that scene, like they had, I mean, uh, uh, Allison Lohman talks about it in an interview. She's like, wait, you like, can I put a plastic bag or something on me? And Raimi's like, no, we, it looks good like this. She's just got to get in there. 
Oh Alex God. and Loma's like, are we sure this is sanitary? Like, probably not, but <laughs> uh, but that whole scene is just a ride. I mean, it is oh, an incredible yeah. sequence. It is everything that Sam Raimi does just like in one scene, everything he does so well in one scene. I think. Yeah, well, he's so good at just mixing horror and comedy. I mean, we've been saying it the whole time, but I mean, that's just he's got some legit like shots that should be scary and like even this yeah. this particular scene it's like it, it there's like little moments of real horror and then just like goofiness and it's uh yeah. it's so interesting but it still drives me crazy that i that i read when i was looking up reviews and i, I think i skipped most of these you know for when somebody needs a nap that where people would just be like this wasn't really scary i was laughing and yeah. i was like that's the point. Not, this is a Sam <laughs> Raimi movie. This is what he does. Yeah. <laughs> and while there is some obvious CGI used in the film, uh, like the anvil scene, like when the guts pop out, that's clearly CGI. Although I fucking love that scene. And honestly, going back to what you just said, Gary, how could anyone watch a scene where a woman gets an anvil dropped on her head, which makes her eyes pop out like Roger Rabbit? How could you not think this movie is supposed to be funny? I know. I don't. I don't <laughs> honestly, know. how could you think that they're, they're, they're being serious at all? Uh, but anyway, uh, Raimi was determined to come up with practical effects solutions to as much as possible, which required his effects crew to bring kind of every possible option to the table. And they would utilize everything from puppetry to prosthetics to green screen, just anything they needed, depending on what the scene required. For instance, uh, I mentioned Mrs. Ganush's floating handkerchief in the in the car attack scene. So that's an effect the, the you know where it kind of floats along the car. I always assumed that was CGI. I mean, there are mm. moments later in the film where it is CGI because it has Mrs. Ganush's face on it, which they, I don't know how they would do that practically. I, I was about but, to make that joke. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, in this instance, they actually had a, a real handkerchief and the team attached the material by four wires to a fishing pole and then just flapped it around. That's how they got that shot. <laughs> like, it, is, it is really cool. And I thought it had to be CG as well. So yeah, yeah pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. Yes. And then in the driving scene that follows where Christina's kind of maniacally driving across town, the handkerchief was hung on two wires in the direction the car moved like a kite. And the material was, they just turned it in and out of the car as they needed. Like it's a very lo-fi solution yeah. to that. And they could have done it in CGI. It would have probably been pretty easy, but Raimi wanted it to really be there, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, some of that stuff, uh, uh, some of that stuff really just it it just looks better. It just looks better because I I always think of uh, Yoda, you know, Mm -hmm. the puppet, the puppet versus the digital Yoda. And well, we're talking Return of the Jedi puppet, not a Phantom Menace puppet, which looked like garbage. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Original puppet versus, uh, you know, prequels digital. Um, Man, I take that puppet every, you know every time it just yeah, it just looks, looks better. better yeah well there's something tangible about these yeah types of it's, special it's, effects you know you, you know what is weird? have to re- you don't have to rethink the wheel like it's mm-hmm. put it on a fishing a fishing wire it'll look right. fine and yeah. it does yeah it looks good <laughs> i well i guess we can talk about this more of the discussion but i also feel like they overuse cgi sometimes in this movie mm. they didn't use it a good bit um I don't, for I don't all know the that stuff over... that we're talking about but yeah well well for instance like you're talking about the the anvil on the head. I don't know why that scene is not just like, you could have just splashed some shit on her face during that scene. And, and it's like clearly CGI with the, yeah. And I know you wanted the, to get the, the eyeballs popping out and stuff, but it's like, I think that might've been part of the decision on that, honestly, because th- it's such a precise, like Mrs. Ganush's eyeballs pop out and hit 
Christine in the eyeballs and, you know, it would be hard to do practically, but yeah. the, I will say that the CGI has not aged particularly well. Um, mm-hmm. it, do, it does look like very much like CGI, but then like you've got scenes where Mrs. Ganoush uh, vomits maggots all over Christine. And you know how they did that? They had a puppet of Mrs. Ganoush. They had a hole in the back of its head with a plunger. They put a bunch of maggots in it and then they just sprayed them all onto Allison Loman's face. Like that's how they got were that they scene. real maggots i thought they i read, read somewhere they were oh, okay. she said they were real maggots so well you know <laughs> and she even there's even behind the scenes footage where she's like oh i gotta open my mouth like <laughs> but <Sam laughs> Raby, yeah that's how that's why the scene's great that's why it's, it's crazy gross. well it's just so weird yeah you go for like those cool practical effects that they do and you know sam's good at it but yeah just odd that yeah like, it's odd. The, but i mean remember he had also worked with cgi a lot on spider-man but spider-man you know spider-man 3 had a 300 million dollar budget so the, the cgi is much better than a 30 million dollar movie yeah and and i'll say too like uh sam's sam's relearning here too in, in some interviews i saw with him he's talking about this was kind of a new lesson like he was he was uh, I think one interviewer asked him if it was cathartic to do this movie, like they could come back to this. And he was like, not really, because he, he was saying that, I mean, at least at the time, he was saying for like the Spider-Man movies had been fine, but it was cool to go back and do this thing like, hey, I've, I can do this. I'm going to do it. But he's like, he's relearning that he's small crew, lower budget, like mm-hmm. uh, redoing all that. He's, he gave a story about, I think it was like the scene where, she's coming out of the house and realizing that like she only has like a little bit more time or that she's out of time. And like, he's like, so what we're going to do is like, I want to have the crane bring the camera in close up as the sun's going down and we'll like zoom in on her and blah, blah, blah. And she'll pop out off screen. Second AD is like sitting there and like, Hey, uh, you got four hours till sundown and we got to get this shot. Also, we don't have money for a crane. <laughs> and so he's like oh yeah okay uh, yeah, i forgot i'm not making spider-man and- <laughs> yeah and they're like uh so he said he had to get like this rose colored stuff to put over a bowl but he's like all right we're just gonna get close on her face and like shine this light in it'll look like sundown and he's like and then it'll he's like the audience will get it that'll work yeah, well, and he's like and i had to remember that that like you could just do this it's fine <laughs> Well, you may notice that watching and while watching this film, that unlike all of Raimi's previous horror films, there's very little blood in this movie. And uh, that was actually intentional on Raimi's part. Uh, he had set out to make a PG-13 movie, not wanting to rely on gore and not wanting to repeat what he had done in the past. Uh, there's plenty of bodily fluid other than <laughs> blood, but not a lot of blood, except for in one scene. You know the scene I'm talking about. It's the scene where Christine has an explosive bloody nose <laughs> while at work. Uh, And this was an effect that had to be done practically. And it was one of the many makeup effects on the film that were the responsibility of Raimi's old army of darkness collaborators uh, at K and B effects. Only at this point, it's just Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger. Uh, Robert Kurtzman had gone off to be a director or something. Um, He directed Wishmaster. (laughs) Maybe he was already on uh, like, did he do Walking Dead? Isn't that like? 20 years that's, of his life or something that's greg nicotero no oh, that's nicotero you're right nicotero yeah uh, so th- this bloody nose scene though this is another one like the car scene where it's just an example of Raimi wanting to make the viewer kind of howl and scream and laugh like it's so ridiculous uh because it originally was written as just being like a regular nosebleed 
It wasn't yeah. supposed to be like this in the original script. And Raimi actually made that decision like during the shoot that we want this to be like just insane, an insane amount of blood. Uh, because <laughs> if it had been just a regular nosebleed, like we've seen that in a hundred other horror movies, yeah. you know, and he wanted something ridiculous. <laughs> so <laughs> he just cranked it up to a point where he actually made it, they, they actually got the, the blood spraying so far at one point that Raimi even had to go to Greg Nicotero go, we need to pull it back a little bit. It's shooting like 12 feet out from her nose. <laughs> uh, but this is that's what Ray, Raimi is doing here. Drag Me to Hell is a visceral assault on the viewer. There's, like I said, there's bodily fluids all over this picture, uh, but this is the only thing that relies on blood, but he does it in such a cartoonish and over-the-top fashion that it doesn't really ever become gross in like a gory horror movie kind of way. Mm. Now they did have to, cut down the scene a little bit to get a PG-13 rating. Although if you've watched the unrated cut of the film, which is what I watched, they have the full scene uh, and it's a lot, it's a lot of blood, but the way they did it was very simple. They had a tube running behind Alison Lohman's ear. They had like a piece of plastic at like a 90 degree angle that so blood would go through the tube, hit that piece of plastic. Just like if you're having, you know, I'm sure you did this when you were kids, like you've got a water hose and you put your thumb over the end of it and it makes it spray. That's basically what they're doing, but with fake blood. So (laughs) the first time they did it, it went backwards and just went all up in Allison Loman's face. (laughs) But uh, once they, after a couple of takes, they got it to where they wanted it to get. Did I get any in my mouth? (laughs) That's such a good line. I wonder if he ad-libbed that because it's such a great line in that scene. (laughs) Well, among K&B's other responsibilities on the film were the many incarnations of Mrs. Ganesh. They created makeup prosthetics that uh, Lorna Raver wears throughout the film, including her dentures and contact lenses. Uh, mm. And I love those dentures. Like after she gets smashed on the front of the car, they're all pointed and jagged. They're super yeah. nice looking. Uh, of course, her, her, you know, her gross fingernails, uh, but they also created the embalmed body that Christine finds at the wake. That's a fake corpse. Remember, they early on in KMB's career, remember what got them noticed by Kevin Costner was them creating fake corpses. Uh, so they did that a couple of times here. The one at the wake where all the embalming fluid falls out into Christine. I was going to say, the more oh. we're talking about this, the more I'm like, how could anybody think he's not trying to just be ridiculous? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then they also created the body, the piece peacefully resting version of Mrs. Ganoush in the cemetery at the end of the movie. Uh, they also created the mechanical goat that's featured in the seance sequence towards the end of the film, which was a fully functioning puppet controlled by Greg Nicotero. Uh, according to Nicotero, he and Raimi had actually talked about designing the Lamia itself as a half goat, half man creature and doing it either as a puppet or a prosthetic, you know, a man in a suit, basically. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, Raimi decided that the Lamia should be an unseen force that can possess the bodies of the people and the goat in the seance. Uh, and they actually initially wanted to use and tried to use a real goat in the scene. There is still a real goat in a couple of moments, like when they're pulling it into the room and stuff. That's a real goat. But right. when it's sitting there by the table, that was supposed to be the real goat as well. And it kept like, they basically said the goat was too cute. It kept doing cute things. Like it would like lick <laughs> Allison Loman's arm or would nibble on somebody's clothing. Like it was just like, oh, we can't like be scared of this. Like, this, this <laughs> cute. So uh, they would ruin takes because they were giggling at the goat. So they ended up <laughs> taking the goat out of the scene. And so all the scenes where you see the goat on the table, that's a puppet. It's a very realistic looking puppet. Mm. Um, and and Raimi uh, tells stories how Nicotero would be controlling the puppet in between takes so Raimi would walk across and he'd make the goat like follow goats 
gaze follow Raimi as he walked. But when <laughs> Raimi turned to look, he would stop. <laughs> like he would just see it out of the, out of this goat moving out of the corner of his eye. Uh, they're just having fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Nicotero also took the goat theme into his other designs for the scene. So when other characters get possessed by the Lamia, you know, they have contact lenses that resembled goat's eyes. They've got sharp pointy teeth, wide noses and brows. They kind of look like vampires from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, or as G- Gary said, they're kind of like second cousins to deadites at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the cool stuff in this uh, is Randy uh, Beckman, uh, stunt coordinator. We we mm-hmm. like to mention our our stunt folks sometimes. This guy, he uh, brothers worked on American Gladiators, uh, and then just a, a shit ton of music stuff. So I don't really. He did know a lot of music can. stuff early in his career, like where he would rig people in music videos or in like live performances when they're hooked up to. I was going to say he's credited with like the the stunt coordinator on like the 96 MTV Music Awards. Mm-hmm. He did like a bunch of NSYNC videos. Oops, I did it again. Did some uh, Michael Jackson, I think. Yeah, did some Michael Jackson. But he's also on, uh, he was stunt coordinator on Boogie Nights and Swordfish. And, did you uh, mention American Gladiators? Yeah, yeah. So American <laughs> Gladiators at first. Uh, somehow he became Raimi's guy around Spider-Man 2. He also did 3, he did uh, Oz. Uh, I think this was the first one where he was the actual stunt coordinator. I think on Spider-Man, he was like, an. I think Spider-Man 2 might have been as like, he was like an assistant stunt coordinator. Yeah, this was the yeah, first one where he was like the man in charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he probably, like I said, he went to three and did Oz. He probably wanted to do Doctor Strange, but he was doing WandaVision, Miss Marvel, Stranger Things, Wakanda Forever. He was working on all those movies. So he's busy. just, he's just busy guy. You know how yeah. it is. Yeah, we love our stunt guys, though. And I mean, he there are some great stunts in this movie. I mean, I mentioned earlier how Allison Lohman did so many of her own stunts where she is you know, being flung around and all this stuff. I mean, that's uh, to be able to teach an untrained actress that is an incredible skill. So I always am fascinated by what stunt people do. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like it's insane enough to put your own body on the line, you know, when you're a trained stunt guy. Yeah. But to train an actress who's never done this kind of work before in just a few weeks to be able to do something that could injure her gravely, yeah, uh, if done incorrectly, is that's that's even more impressive to me, I think. So let's I wanted to talk a little bit about this drag to hell sequence at the end of the movie. Uh, the very last scene, you know, on the train tracks. Well, they they were uh this was actually shot partially on a stage. So when they when the, when they walk into the train station, that's Union Station in Los Angeles. But here's the thing. Sam Raimi uh, had not been to Union Station a lot. When he thought of a train station, he actually was thinking of New York subways. Mm. Uh, and the, tra- the, the you know, where you stand is about six, you know, four or six feet higher than where the tracks actually are. The tracks are lowered. Uh, so that's what he was thinking the whole time he was visualizing the sequence. And they walk into Union, Union Station and the tracks are only like six inches lower than where you stand. <laughs> and he, so in the scene where you see like them walk in and the tracks are lowered, uh, that's all that all had to be CGI'd to make it the rest of the scene work correctly because the only way she could like fall down and he can't get to her is if she's like six feet below him, right? Right. Fuck the budget here, Sam. (laughs) Scouting Um, the location. Yeah. Yeah. So, but for the scene itself where she is drugged, dragged, dragged, I think is the correct term, dragged to hell. Drugged Uh, to hell. uh, I think that's a, that's something different. Uh, (laughs) Dragged (laughs) to hell. Uh, She, uh, they, they shot that on a, on a soundstage in the Fox lot. Uh, And 
the tracks themselves were built on a raised stage, right? So you had the tracks on a raised stage and then the platform that he's standing on even higher than that. And so basically it's like a, they built a pit and inside this pit was a translucent chair on hydraulics that would lower. And the inside of the pit was covered in green screen. So the, the translucent chair is where Allison Lohman would sit and get kind of lowered down. And it was translucent so that they could shoot light up. They had like light reflecting off of, uh, kind of like a metal, like a, it looks kind of like aluminum foil to where like you just get all these weird light patterns on her from below. Yeah. So down in the pit, they would have members of the K and B team. They would be dressed in green body suits. So you couldn't, so they could CG them out, but they would have um, demon arm coverings, like up to like probably the elbow or the, or the shoulder so that they could grab her. So those are actually real hands grabbing her members of the K and B effects team. Oh, wow. uh, and then the final product is of course, the result of practical effects augmented with CGI. So mm. they they are actually pulling her down and they put all the other elements like the stone and stuff is all CGI around her. It's a little disappointing because I thought like going into this, maybe I would read that like the reason you haven't seen Alison Lohman anymore is because she's <laughs> so invested. They really dragged her to hell. She is a, she is committed. <laughs> that is method acting right there. She literally yeah, no. went to hell. Sam, the only way we can really do this is if I actually go to hell. <laughs> so they had to like fucking summon the lobby. <laughs> uh, the final sequence that they actually shot on the film was the graveyard scene, which is towards the very end of the movie uh, before the, the train sequence. But uh, kind of the big finale of the movie is that graveyard scene where Christine has to unearth Mrs. Ganush's grave. And this seems like a pretty simple setup, but coordinating all of this pouring rain and all of this mud that fills the grave was not easy. Mm-hmm. Took about I love two the idea of trying to picture her digging that fucking hole. The whole thing, like from <laughs> yeah. the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it took them about two weeks to shoot that scene. The the car sequence actually was about a two week shoot as well, just for that car, the car fight. But this scene took about two weeks and to pull it off, special effects coordinator, Jim Schwalm and his crew built a triangle shaped steel tank and then created dams so that they could adjust the height of the mud that was dumped into the tank. Now, real quick, a little disclaimer, a lot of the information that I found Uh, on the production of this movie came from the official production um, website from back in 2009, when the movie came out, I found it through the internet archive. Uh, And there, and and that one, it says that the mud was made of a uh, substance called methyl cellulose, which is just a a thickening agent. It's Mm. used in a lot of food. It also gets used in laxatives. Uh, And it was a mixture of that and Oreo cookie dye. But Allison Lohman in interviews on the Shout Factory Blu-ray says that the initial mud concoction that they had created, uh, she actually had an allergic reaction to it. So they had to find something else. And she says, and uh, somebody else on on the Blu-ray also says, I can't remember who, but they said that they actually ended up using mud from like a like a beauty spa you know like where people go get mud baths oh, yeah. they ended up using that so basically allison loman during this entire two-week sequence she's getting an extended you know facial yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah exactly so anyway so they've got all this mud whatever it's made out of and it's pumped into tanks and in increments from all three sides of this triangle throughout the sequence and doing it this way because they've got the dams where they can kind of control the effects team could put in another dam and fill in more mud on cue if Sam Raimi wanted more mud. 
Uh, and it was an incredibly difficult sequence to film for Allison Lohman. As you can imagine, she is soaking wet the whole time. She's covered in mud for two weeks. She actually got shingles after shooting this scene. Oh. Um, and she she went to her doctor and the doctor's like, what have you been doing? <laughs> She's like, well, I spent the last two weeks digging in a grave. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw in like one interview, she said like she'd be so amped up like after shooting like from all the crap going on, like she'd just have to go home and she'd like take shots of tequila to yeah. like go to sleep at night. <laughs> well, Drag Me to Hell was edited by Bob Murawski. He had uh, worked with Raimi on Army of Darkness, The Gift, and the Spider-Man films. And for once, on a Raimi horror film, there doesn't seem to be uh, any record of Raimi really having to battle with the MPAA during the editing process. Despite this being a much more violent film than Army of Darkness, which they had tried to slap with an NC-17 rating, um, I guess by this point, the MPAA saw Raimi as a bigger player, uh, or maybe they took him more seriously. I mean, he is, at this point, he is Spider-Man Sam Raimi, so yeah. he can kind of get yeah. away with a little bit more. He's yeah, a, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like they were just kind of like, all right, you've you've passed our bullshit test. Welcome yeah, yeah. to Hollywood. <laughs> and he and Murawski, um, you know, they've got a good rapport. I, he's a great friend of Sam Raimi's. You mentioned he worked with him on Army of Darkness. He went straight from Army of Darkness to Hard Target, which we've talked about more than I ever thought we would in this series. <laughs> uh, and, and I think through all of that, he, he and Sam like became thick as thieves. He'd go on to do some fun horror stuff like Night of the Scarecrow, Uncle Sam, uh, not related to Raimi. Uh, but... I mean, except that Uncle Sam was directed by Bill Lustig, who we know is a friend of Sam Raimi's. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like you said, with Sam, he does The Gift. He does Spider-Man 1, 2, 3, Drag Me to Hell, Oz, Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is Sam's guy uh, yeah. for directing. Another. Another Sam fun talks fact. about really liking the uh, the editing process with Morawski because it's not just them like putting scenes together. He describes it as a very creative process. And a lot of the time, you know, Morawski is the one who's going, okay, we need another shot here to make the scene really work. So they'll, they'll put that into, you know, the notes for what they got to get in reshoots. And even things like the shadows of the, the Lamia and things like that, a lot of that comes up during post-production when him and Raimi are editing. Uh, so it feels like it's, it's less like this is just a guy who's going to string together scenes in a movie. It seems like a real creative partnership between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They um, uh, Sam loves uh, Mirowski. And uh, another fun fact is uh, Chris Ennis, who was the editor on Quick and the Dead, also followed Sam immediately after that to American Gothic, which was a show that Randy and Rob Tappert uh, were executive producing. And right, there, Rob Taper, I believe. <laughs> and there, uh, Sam introduced uh, Murawski and Ennis, and they fell in love and became a big old editing family. Oh, uh, cute. Yeah. Ennis would go on, uh, Chris Ennis would go on to do uh, the I thought 22. they were going to like, actually get married. I thought that's where that story was going. No, 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 they did. They, they got real married. Yeah, I think they got real married. Yeah. Oh, good. Good for them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And uh, and then and Ennis would do like uh, I think Ennis did the 2010 restoration of Evil Dead. Nice. Uh, also worked on some Spider-Man stuff. So those are some nice. Raimi hooked him up. I love it. I love that. Uh, the film's score was composed by Christopher Young. He, he, if you know who Christopher Young is, I mean, he has a 
long history of scoring genre films, probably best known as the composer of Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. Uh, but he had also done the scores for Toby Hooper's uh, Invaders from Mars and the Dark Half, uh, as well as Raimi's The Gift and Spider-Man 3. He took over for Danny Elfman on Spider-Man 3. Uh, and the Raimi produced uh, The Grudge and The Grudge 2, which we mentioned earlier. Hmm. Yeah, you, you said The Gift and Spider-Man 3. Uh, this this film, if you're going to find like uh, a fucking horror guy, uh, a, a score, a person to score your horror movie is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, this was like the 21st horror film that Christopher yeah. Young <laughs> It's had like most composed. of his movies, yeah. Yeah, uh, he, he did, uh, hold on, I got him here. The Dorm That Dripped Blood in 82, The Power in 84, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge in 85, Torment in 86, Invaders from Mars 86, Trick or Treat 86, Hellraiser 87, Hellraiser 2 88, The Fly 2 in 89, The Vagrant 92, The Dark Half in 93, Tales from the Hood in 95, Species 95, Urban Legend 98, Bless This Child in 2000, The Gift 2000, The Grudge 2004, The Exorcism of Emily Rose in 2005, The Grudge 2 in 2006, Uninvited 2009, and uh that's just up to this point yeah and then (laughs) he goes on to do like stuff like priest in 2011 sinister in 2012 scarier die in 2012 deliverance from evil in 2014 pet cemetery in 2019 the empty man in 2020 and and these are not like little like exploitation horror movies like you've heard of almost every one of those (laughs) like these are big all big horror movies yeah, he uh, he, I saw a quote with him in uh, a random thing. He just said, I, I'm into horror pictures because I love the fear of being alone in the dark. And I'd recommend <laughs> that to any composer who wants to work in this genre. When I was younger, I'd make it a point to drive in the middle of nowhere and spend an evening with just me, the wind and the moon. Your skin, craw- your skin crawls up an octave. That's what I tap into when I'm working on horror. I'm afraid <laughs> of a time that will come that I'll lose touch with that part of myself. Wow. so anyway big 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 horror fan this guy i love that i love that quote (laughs) (laughs) another weird part uh by the way too that i was reading about was just that you know in the diner scene later um they play uh lalo schifrin's the exorcist symphony which was part of the original soundtrack for the exorcist that was never used like literally william Friedkin supposedly heard it and threw it out the window (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and uh they use that song and so i you know I, i'm sure this will go for one day when we actually do the exorcist again or for the first time i don't even remember anymore um but they had he was he was scoring the exorcist and supposedly had recorded six minutes to do so they could throw it on a trailer and uh it says that audiences were sickened like they were throwing up because of the mixture of sights and sounds and they had told him not to go dark with the trailer or something and he apparently went too dark with the trailer and uh (laughs) anyway they uh they told freakin to tell him to tone it down and uh Friedkin did not relay that message he was apparently pissed threw it out the window literally and fired him from (laughs) the movie wow but uh anyway <laughs> so he later reused some of the stuff but uh sam raimi uses part of his score here in the diner that's fun fun little easter egg that's a fun yeah. fact oh i should have saved that for the fun facts fuck <laughs> drag me to hell was released in may of 2009 critical reviews were almost unanimously positive uh even entertainment weekly's owen gleberman remember we talked about him last episode that is an old crank 
who doesn't seem to like anything. He gave the film a positive review, calling it the most crazy, fun, and terrifying horror movie in years. Uh, but I would imagine, I know, in fact, that there are people out there on the internet who don't like this movie. Even people who are like Raimi fans don't like this movie, which I don't understand. So um, let's just get into it, Gary. Let's get into it. Counterintuitive, but uh, Sam Raimi does a horror movie, and it turns out some people need to go to sleep. Oh, I should have done the goblin thing. I didn't even plan that joke properly. Sleep. Remember that? <laughs> when he like sprays J. Jonah Jameson or yeah. no, Spider-Man? Yeah. Okay, anyway. Um, this review says, see the cover? That's what happens. Don't like spoilers? The spoiler is don't waste your money. Come on, make me feel good? No. Okay, then. What's the point of this movie? Written to piss me off? Because it did. The old, old evil lady dies of natural causes and the sweet, young, innocent girl gets that killed a kitty gets dragged to hell. Huh? No comeback? No retribution? I wanted the old lady to pay. I wanted payback. I wanted moments of righteous kick-ass. None of that here. Sorry. Next sucker. Oh, I see what you did there. That's not entertainment. That's disappointment. What exactly were the makers of this movie trying to achieve? Don't they watch movies? Don't they know what sells? Here, I spell it out for free. What works? One, good guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Two, good guy's family gets slaughtered and almost dies. Gets slaughtered and almost dies. Hmm. Anyway. Uh, three, good guy <laughs> comes back from the dead. Four, good guy takes revenge and kicks serious ass and everyone cheers. Five, good guy walks off into the sunset. Six, the end. What doesn't work? One, good girl in the wrong place at the wrong time. Two, good girl gets cursed and tormented by an old evil bitch. Three, good girl suffers and gets dragged to hell. Four, the end. So when and if Drag Me to Hell 2 comes out, you know what happens. Edit. I can even think of a really cool line. Hey, bitch, you made me kill my kitty. Splat with the shovel to the gubs. Nope, not there. Obvious, but not there. Shakes head. <laughs> <laughs> That's my. That might be my least favorite person you've ever read in the sequence. <laughs> oh, man. First of all, he calls her a sweet, innocent girl who murdered a kitty. <laughs> Like those two things don't work together. <laughs> <laughs> D gave it one out of five stars. Uh, <laughs> I love this one just because it's the the subheading is too scary. Did not watch, and then the <laughs> comment is watch for literally two minutes and shut it off. So they didn't even make it to where it says "drag me to hell" on the screen. <laughs> <It feels> like, <laughs> like they this is the cold open. Wow. <laughs> Uh, here's Nick, uh, one out of five stars, calls it a garbage waste of time. Uh, we always get one of these. One of the dumbest movies I've ever seen. Yeah! <laughs> uh, it has Justin Long. Yeah! That's just a fact. Can't stand the side of him ever since Tusk as even a worse movie. If you like this movie, you are sus. <laughs> Jesus. Mm. <laughs> Uh, Rob, uh, assume this is Tappert or Tapert. <laughs> uh, one out of five. LMAO, what was this supposed to be serious? LOL, this was the funniest movie I've seen in a while. This could be renamed Scary Movie Five. Honestly, was it directed by the Wayans brothers? Someone please tell me this was supposed to be satire. So that's the first one so far where somebody's, uh, I can't believe I kept that one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was going through and skimming them. 
Like I was just like, all right, fuck you guys. If you don't know what Sam Raimi does now. <laughs> Andalusian dog. One out of five stars. Drag me to the garbage can. Zero stars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dumb. That's not even clever. <laughs> uh, a lot of the letterbox ones were not in English. So I didn't get to keep on the, the worst reviews. So not didn't fare well. What language were they in out of curiosity? I don't even remember. I felt like it was a mix, honestly. Hungarian. That's why they all gave it bad reviews. They're like, this is not a proper representation of the Hungarian <laughs> people. Yeah, I was going to say, I definitely saw some some of that. And I saw some that were like, Sam Raimi hates Jews or something. I'm like, Sam Raimi is a Jew. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Cookie Cat, though, half star. It's not a bad movie. It's an awful one. Uh, was that the whole review? Yep. <laughs> Molly <laughs> says... Well, I'd like to know the difference. <laughs> Molly says, wish I could give it zero stars. Anyone who would harm a cat deserves to go to hell. I hope this bitch dies in the end, but I'm not watching another minute of it. Oh, man, she guessed. <laughs> <laughs> Nicola says, this is every middle-aged white woman's fantasy when a minimum wage retail worker says she can't process their refund without a receipt. <laughs> Uh, let's see uh logan says uh the main character was annoying as fuck she killed a kitten for no reason she deep-throated way too many things and everyone's acting except for justin was painfully awful the only good things were justin and the fact that she died good riddance wow Point for Justin's. <laughs> and finally, let's go to uh, Dean Toledano, who uh, tried to write coherently, it seems. Uh, half star. It's unfortunate that this has to be the first movie I review, but it is the latest I've seen, so I might as well. Mm, so we're getting on, on his... We're popping his letterbox cherry here. Yeah. This, this movie is two hours of cheese that perfectly skirts the line between satirical parody like pace and writing style and a serious consistently toned horror flick as cheesy and predictable that it might intend to be this dichotomy in presentation and tone elicits nothing but confusion and stillness. No character is more interesting and worthy of your time than they are the butt of a joke. Is it even a joke? The fact that I cannot answer that question means to me that the film failed to hit the mark of satire. Was it scary or investing? Did it instill the dreadful feeling of an eerie silence falling on a parquet hallway at night? What? I don't know. <laughs> the what was me. <laughs> Making me question <laughs> its validity as a horror movie. The intentions behind this movie are unclear. And from my perspective, they might have been unclear in the writing room. I did enjoy the ending effect. But that's it. And so that's your last one. Yep. So that they, I'm honestly surprised that more of those reviews don't mention the ending as far as are basically your heroine getting dragged to hell. Because I remember when the movie came out, that was kind of a point of contention among a lot of people. They didn't like that downer ending. A couple of them mentioned an unhappy ending. I think that you, you read there, but uh, that was a big kind of, thing when the movie came out that people didn't like that she that basically the lamia wins at the end yeah yeah there's I, no stopping it i remember going to see it in, in the theater and and i may have even seen it with you justin i don't even remember yeah. but um 
but I remember loving that. Yeah. That like when drag me to hell pops up on the screen, I was stoked. I was like, holy shit. It, they did. They did it. Yeah. Yeah. They did <laughs> it. They did you it. They all said. the way here. And that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I read an interview with Ramey. It was around 2019. Cause it was around the film's 10th anniversary. Uh, it was with bloody disgusting, I believe. And Ramey was asked about the ending and he does say, he's like, yeah. Um, Christine's punishment is a bit harsh. He says that it's a, here's a quote. It is a morality tale. She did do the wrong thing, but holy cow, give her a break. But that's how this particular tale ends. And then he goes on to say, I thought it would be shocking to title the film, drag me to hell and actually ending, end it with giving exactly what the title demanded and still making it incredibly shocking. I thought that was a really funny cocktail for me. <laughs> that's that's awesome. it, man. I love it. I remember just loving I think loving it's great. Just, I love I, that they went there. I don't know. It's it's weird with like certain movies. You know, you mentioned we were talking about Fincher earlier for a brief second. And you mentioned the game. And I was thinking about that. That like, well, I don't want to talk too much about it if nobody's seen it. But I love the ending of that movie is, I guess, what I'm trying to say, because it just it just feels like the right ending. And this one, this one just feels right because the movie is called Drag Me to Hell. And it's just mm-hmm. like sometimes you just can't stop the devil. Yeah, you know, yeah, like the yeah, demons exactly. coming. This is the deal. This is what it does. The fucking lady wasn't able to start it at the be- stop it at the beginning, and she's not able to stop it later on in the movie. Nobody can. It's just what happens. It's just what happens. Yeah. I, I read one uh, writer, and they actually made a kind of fun point where they said that Christine is kind of damned by her own decisions. You know, which is yes, what kicks off the whole curse thing but mm. she also continuously makes bad decisions throughout the movie and they're all selfish decisions uh killing her cat you know that's one of them but also like at the end of the movie clay justin long pulls the cursed button out of his pocket and presumably that could mean that he's cursed if he is now the owner of that right yeah uh, i mean she didn't gift it to him but we don't know exactly how this whole thing works but she doesn't try to snatch it from him to save his life she starts backing away and that's why she dies is because she's running away from it uh and he makes the right he makes selfless decisions the entire movie like he doesn't believe her he doesn't believe in this stuff he's a very kind of practical person but he even gives her $10,000 to go to yeah. see the seer, you know, like even though he doesn't believe just because he cares about her more than he cares about that money, where she, every decision she makes is out of selfishness because, I mean, the reason that she gets put into this cursed situation to begin with is because she's trying to get a job promotion. Yeah. And to do so, she's willing to kick an old lady out of her house. Like that's pretty fucked up. Uh, yeah. So the, the article kind of says that, Hey, you know, she wasn't necessarily like killed by a, a, the, this gypsy curse. It was by her own like selfish decisions. Mm. And the reason that he is saved in the end is because every decision he makes is for somebody else and not for herself. Even when his parents tell her to like leave her, he sticks to her sticks by her side. I thought that was a pretty cool interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Know, that, that seems to hold water. Yeah. It's weird because like so many people, uh, like I, I skipped uh, another thing that I skipped over a little bit was when people try to get way too analytical and serious, uh, yeah. one of the dumb reviews, I guess, but I mean, the last one, the guy was very intelligent the way he wrote, but, um, it just, uh, some people were trying to like, attribute this to like uh well this is what happens when a woman in the office tries to get ahead like this Mm -hmm. is 
to slap her down and yada 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 i i can't even remember like all the like i said somewhere like uh attributing Ramy or like jew hate to Ramy or something and like disc uh discrediting gypsies and man it's just it just sucks because it's like after this whole series one thing i feel like you can't deny or that like if people had like the whole context of sam Raimi, it's just like the guy just he's just trying to tell like give you a yard like yeah. he's, he's, yeah. Like, he's yeah. trying to give you a good like, time like yeah. it could have been bruce campbell in the lead role again mm-hmm. here like it what it didn't matter who it was it was just to tell about this person who keeps you know making bad choices and yeah. uh yeah I don't know. It That's is, all he's going for. I mean, yeah, there is a little bit of that like workplace misogyny in the beginning where, you know, she's clearly like being looked over sure, in sure. favor of uh, Stu, who's another man. But the movie's not that concerned with that, I don't think. I, it, it is legitimately just Sam Raimi tar- trying to tell a fun story and give the audience a, a ride. It's a carnival ride. That's what they're going for. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that ending it does make the film pretty final <laughs> despite being a, a modest success. Uh, there's never been a sequel to this movie because like, where do you go after your main character has gone to hell? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but Ramey, he has said in interviews, in fact, in that same bloody disgusting interview that I referenced, um, he's not opposed to a sequel. He just doesn't have an idea for it. He said, quote, I don't have a story because in my mind, the character got killed and worse. Usually for me, I'm left with a character like Bruce Campbell that I'm really interested in or like a concept that really feels like it needs to continue. But this is such a definitive ending that in my mind, I didn't know where to start with a sequel. Mm. So that, Todd, you're going to love this uh, because I know how your brain works. But where would y'all go if they were to make a sequel to Drag Me to Hell? How do you think that would be possible? I mean, it could be just another story of the Lamia tormenting some other random person and Christine is not involved at all. It's just all new characters. Well, I, I read this uh, bloody disgusting interview also. And so mm-hmm. I know where the guy who wrote the article about it goes and it's fucking phenomenal. And yeah. His, his, his version is great. And I think well, honestly, yeah. Cause, cause I have a, I have a thought, but yeah. What was his, his basically says, and I wish I had the writer's name in front of me, uh, but he basically says that they should make a sequel called Drag Me From Hell. And it's about Justin Long's character who has spent the subsequent 10 years or at this point, like 14 years uh, studying the occult. And he's going to go get her, basically, oh, which that's a great that's story. Fun. I think that's yeah, fun. That. <laughs> I love that idea. I read that and I was like, well, shit, that's well, shit. Did, Let's did he it. tell Sam that? Like somebody, <laughs> you should have mentioned that. You should have brought that up. You could be a screenwriter now, dude. Yeah. <laughs> my my thought was, uh, you know, because Sam takes inspiration from movies that have, uh, uh, you know, that he was inspired by. I think it might be fun to sort of do a take on uh, Snake Plissken and have it be Escape from Hell. And it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's Christine, but she becomes like this badass uh, hell you want, yeah if you wanted to go the ash route like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i like yeah that. allison loman's all jacked yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh my oh man that'd be so much fun <laughs> yeah that's fun that's fun uh i mean i remember when this was released in 2009 i saw it in the theater uh me and gary i think we might have seen it together like you mentioned i don't remember but i feel like we would have probably seen this at the same time but for horror nerds like us you know it was like a reason to celebrate because we do like this is sam raymond this is the guy behind the evil dead and the army of darkness and he's finally returning to horror yeah. but i feel like in the years since it's kind of become forgotten like 
I, Gary, I know you mentioned last week uh, that several folks that you had mentioned the movie to or mentioned that we were going to be covering it had like, they told you it. they'd, we've, we've, oh yeah, I haven't seen that one. I've not, I never got around to seeing Drag Me to Hell. And Todd, this was your first time seeing this, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think this wow. is my first time seeing this. And, yeah, and you're a Sam Raimi fan. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I take I'm, it for granted, I guess, because I feel like I've seen this movie like, I've seen, a lot times of times. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it a lot of times because uh, I mean I don't imagine I don't imagine that I saw it and forgot it like that car sequence is it's... pretty fucking memorable yeah so yeah. uh yeah I'm pretty sure this was my first viewing and it really uh I think you know Gary with uh Gary's profession I think the term is uh, a mark but uh in stand-up <laughs> comedy it's uh audiencing this movie completely audienced me uh, where, you know, having done this show with you guys for as long as we've done it now, I think I am approaching things with a little more of a critical eye and, you know, able to sort of, Oh, I, okay. I see what they're doing there. Yeah. That's no, that's great. Yeah. But I see, you know, this totally sucked me in. And I think probably from the, that car sequence initially, like I said, I thought we were looking at the back of Christine's head. And then when Mrs. Ganush leans into the light, I was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> I don't I don't audibly respond to a lot of movies, but that got a no shit out of me. And uh, yeah, this was it was a lot of fun. And I, I'm always curious about like when stuff plays with the paranormal, just because, uh, you know, I come from a religious background, all three of us do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm always concerned about like, or I'm always fascinated about how that's going to play. And I feel, and I, Justin, I mentioned this to you the other day that I feel like it was specific enough to have credibility, Mm -hmm. but vague enough to not be offensive i feel like yeah because even you know some of those reviews that gary didn't read that he mentioned where people were offended because you know and i made the joke about <laughs> that this is not a great representation of the hungarian people uh right, in, right. in actuality they never say where she's from she speaks some hungarian words but she is just a she's from an east of eastern european origin right. <laughs> you could say right but they never say where she's from they're never attacking any specific you know, nationality, uh, because it is just like a folk tale. Like this is a, it's a gypsy. You know, I mean, we watched at your house the other night, we watched the Wolfman, yeah, which also deals with a gypsy curse. It you does. Know? And it's the <laughs> same thing. It's just like, this is, this is not based on like, a. I mean, yeah, there are the Romani people. There are traveling gypsies, uh, throughout Europe and throughout history, but this is not like about a specific group of people, just like the Lamia is not right. about a, an actual real specific demon. It's just yeah. a thing that they made up because yeah. it's it's in service of the story. Yeah. Uh, part of that religious background for me makes me kind of appreciate. I, I think that's why I was kind of like happy at the end, as, as demented as it sounds, is like, I love the idea sometimes too, that like, it's, it's like, we just told a fun story, but also, uh, you know, if hell's supposed to be a, uh, uh, What's, what am I looking for here? Like a scary force or a uh, imposing force. Like the person who just had to be concerned about it yesterday doesn't get to beat it. Like, yeah. It just, yeah. Like, this is... The Lamy has got a contract to fulfill and she's yeah. not letting anything get in. Get and in the Lamy has been doing this for fuck knows how long. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's good at her job. <laughs> Christine, you think you bank teller, you just figured it out? No, nah, man. <laughs> Lamy has been doing this a while. Christine I mean, does. Christine does not shop smart. 
<laughs> does not <laughs> so, shop S Mart. <laughs> Todd, as a as a fan of Sam Raimi who'd never seen this, like, how do you think it feels as like a return to form? Do you do you feel like it's a return to not that he was making bad movies in between, but well, you know, just as as a horror filmmaker. I'm, I'm going to pull the curtain back on the inner workings of cinema shock folks. I made a, what I felt was a very strong argument to Justin that we should cover the Spider-Man movies because I felt like that was part of the cohesive story. And Justin adamantly is like, no, no, no. It needs to go in this order, the order that we have done it in. And having seen this now juxtaposed with, everything that came before in this series. I'm so glad Justin stuck to his guns and I'm so glad that we did this because it was really, it really watches like everything Sam Raimi learned from being a little kid doing magic tricks to throwing pies in Bruce Campbell's face to, Hey, let's, uh, you know, let's build part of a castle and have Ash do some fun stuff. And hey, let's, you know, let's give Sharon Stone and, and Gene Hackman some guns and let them, you know, du- duke it out. This is the culmination of that journey. And yeah. I this is so, so great. Uh, I really wish um, the writer of the Evil Dead uh, companion, I think it's Bill. Bill Warren. Bill Warren. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, I really wish, I, I hope he does a, an, an updated, an updated version because I, uh, drag me to hell, yeah. yeah, and includes drag me to hell because this really, if you are a fan of the evil dead stuff, and if you're a fan of sort of the, of the spook of blast type stuff that Sam Raimi started and dare I say perfected the, it, it leads you inevitably to drag me to hell. And it's so great. It's really, really great. Um, That that final scene of her on the tracks and things open up, even though you kind of get a sense of it with the cold open of like how it looks and what it's going to do and all that stuff. Like it's 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 got the scary factor. And like but but again, it is a fun thrill ride throughout. Even like I mentioned, it audienced me in so much that when she's at the when she's at the gravesite, I was and she shoves the envelope in the old lady's mouth and the whole thing. I was just kind of <laughs> so okay. It's about to end. Like she's gonna yeah. get sucked to hell and the whole thing. And she doesn't. I'm like, wait, did she just win? She like, won. Did, yeah, I, I was and then like, he pulls the rug out from under you. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, oh, you got me, Sam. Damn it. <laughs> and that scene I, at the end is the only time that Justin Long's character ever sees any proof of this and it's seeing the love of his life get dragged to hell yeah yeah <laughs> i just oh, love that's just man. sam raimi just being a he's just a rascal just, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i love yeah. that he had, there are little touches in this that no other filmmaker could pull off like the anvil scene like the fucking goat <laughs> when it yeah. starts talking when that goat starts talking i just remember being in the theater and just howling at that and i'm sure <laughs> other people saw it and thought that was stupid and i thought it was just amazing just because like oh man you you really did that like this is silly this is a cartoon and i'm here oh yeah well and it was so fun even just little shout outs i mean we you know the classic has appeared throughout but like Mm -hmm. her going into that little shed i was like oh this feels like she just yeah which (laughs) (laughs) it It feels like she stepped onto the set of evil dead too i was like i I think i said that out loud when i was watching when she walked into that and i was watching it i get (laughs) which 
Which, I, and I, little flourishes <laughs> like that, or the hang in there poster with the little kitty hanging on. Yes. Like, like little things so like funny. that are, are, are really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, now, Gary, you've seen this as probably maybe even more times than I have. Um, not without ranking all of Sam Raimi's movies right now, but where do you think this stands for you as far as like his horror output goes? Uh, or just overall? I mean, this is for me, this is damn near the top. Okay, honestly. so that actually makes me feel better because what I was going to say is like, I honestly feel like it could be blasphemy to say, but I feel like overall, I mean, if we're not counting like, I don't know, Spider-Man 2 or something, which I haven't seen in a little while, so it'll be fun to revisit that when we do. But uh, as far as Spooka Blast movies, I feel like Drag Me to Hell is the best one. Like, I, I, I know it's, it's, it feels wrong to say that when Evil Dead 2 is in there and all of that yeah. stuff and Army of Darkness and everything else. But it just it, it just feels like it's everything you love about Sam Raimi. And I really. But he's got better. Like good story. Yeah. And he's good. That's at the it. thing is that like he's got the same sensibilities, the same wacky sense of humor. Uh, but he's got he's become over the subsequent 16 years since Army of Darkness, he's become a better filmmaker hands down i mean there's no arguing that i mean through the process of making smaller dramas like a simple plan in the gift and through making big blockbusters like spider-man he became a better filmmaker not that he was a bad filmmaker at all he's been a great filmmaker from the first evil dead he's just got a natural knack for it but from a technical standpoint he's gotten better and he's using all the all of what he's learned over the years but with those same that same like childlike glee that he brought to those early horror films literally the only negative thing i have about drag me to hell is some of the cg yeah like that's, and that's that i could like you just accept it, it, that i just kind of forgive it as yeah, like yeah. part of its time right and then yeah. just yeah 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 it, because the important parts that matter on that like because literally what i'm thinking about when i think about the evil dead movies is i think of and especially evil dead one but but, but evil dead two and army of darkness like those movies i feel like they all have um i think on modern audiences there's a place to get lost at when people mm -hmm. go back and revisit that they don't play quite like modern movies so like sure. you have to for people who aren't used to watching that kind of stuff like exactly are. Yeah. yeah yeah so yeah. i could see like uh a zennial watching evil dead 2 and being what the fuck you yeah. know and i feel like drag me to hell for a modern audience is the one like if you were going to show like somebody a sam raimi movie like you to, to get an idea of who sam raimi is then then yeah i, I think drag me to hell is the one yeah if you'd never seen if you'd never seen any of sam raimi's films and you watched evil dead evil dead 2 but you knew film and you knew what things could come down the line I feel like someone would say, like, I want to see what this guy does in 20 years. Yeah. And this is it. And yeah. this this is like, yeah, he took the journey that he absolutely should have. Ups, downs, good, bad, all of it to come to drag me to hell. And for sure, it's it for sure such is a satisfying evolution. ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the evolution because this is like if you watch Ash versus Evil Dead, the series, this is mm. in the same universe as Drag Me to Hell. Like this yeah. is, you know, nice. like you could th these are these are happening at the same time. Yeah, like, it yeah, just feels just like it's exactly the same. Absolutely. 
Nice. All right. Well, while we're on this, uh, as we wrap up this discussion, uh, of course, we've referenced so many other movies during this series uh, because Sam Raimi is so influenced by movies that he's seen. Uh, so there's a lot to choose from when you're talking about uh, movies to pair with Drag Me to Hell. So as we like to do in our little further viewing segment, if you if you guys were going to pick out another movie to pair as a part of a double feature with Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell, what are you guys picking? I thought long and hard about this. And I was having trouble. I mean, besides being obvious and saying like, oh, you watch Evil Dead too. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's like that. easy. I mean, I mean uh, honestly, that's that's the one. <laughs> like right, that, right. Really. But yeah, if you want to get more creative and not go Evil Dead 2. But honestly, Evil Dead 2 plus this is the ultimate double feature. So we'll just get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was like, I, I went to two filmmakers. I finally landed on. There are filmmakers that I think have obviously loved Sam Raimi and their lives. And, uh, and, and, and at first I was thinking Mike Flanagan, um, who I love a lot, but he, he gets a little darker and more serious in most of his stuff. Although he did do Ouija origin of evil, which is dark, mm -hmm. but I feel like that movie could work with it. Yeah. Uh, it feels like with the demon stuff, like it feels like it could work, yeah. but I would more do James Wan, uh, because, I feel like that guy has a little more fun with his stuff. And especially uh, with like in, uh, is insidious. insidious. Yeah. I, that's exactly mm. the one I was thinking of. You got All that, the way up to the title scene, like popping yeah. up on the screen. And you've just got that, like that spook house thing that a lot of people don't like about insidious, which is honestly my favorite thing in the whole movie. Uh, that, that whole spook house vibe of the, what do they call it? The ether or something? What's it? Like, yeah, I was going to say, like, especially even in Insidious, when it's like super creepy up front by the end of it, it's it's a haunted house ride. Right. Uh, exactly. Which is, you know, it's like some people are like, oh, that ruined it. And I'm just kind of like, nah, it's still fun. Yeah. That's what I love about it, honestly. How about you, Todd? Uh, well, I was trying to think of like, you know, going back to this fantastical scenario and people being thrust into it. And I feel like, Christine and especially Clay kind of approach it with a level of uh, realism, you know, and again, they used they used actual lighting in some of the locations, you know, again, to ground it in realism. So I was thinking about other fantastical scenarios and different, um, you know, high concept narratives that were approached fairly logically by the characters within those stories and I came to one that we actually uh, that we actually already mentioned in the show today. Um, so from 2007, it's Tom Cruise. It is not Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one of the credited screenwriters was the writer of the original source material. Do either of you have a guess? Mm, source material for the film? Mm -hmm. No, uh, no, hell Wouldn't no. The, um, you say that, writer would, that writer would <laughs> be no. Steve would be Steve Niles. Oh, 30 days of night. 30 days of night. Yeah. yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, in uh, I remember reading uh, an article or an interview rather with Steve Niles when he uh, came up with that and was just kind of like, wait a minute, wouldn't vampires just live somewhere where it's dark all the time? And, yeah. you know, and then he did that. How's nobody done this? Yeah. <laughs> And, and then that that same article that had that interview went on to interview like a few other creators, especially like horror comics creators, 
And they collectively slap their foreheads of like, why the hell didn't I think of that? <laughs> like, it's such a simple idea. But, you know, going through that movie, which uh, is really well made, I feel like, I mean, you know, opinions on it are what they are. I feel but, like it's uh, not as loved as it could be. It's better than the, right. the reputation it has. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I feel like all the choices that are made are sort of in these dire circumstances of like, okay, this is the scenario we've been presented. This is what we have to do. Let's go. And, um, you know, things turn out the way they are. But I feel like this would be kind of cool. Again, I feel like this is a really warm movie. Like there's a lot of warmness, but uh, especially with different lighting and, you know, where it takes place and everything. But 30 Days of Night is very cold. Uh, obviously, it takes place, you know, at the top of the world. And I feel like those two would be kind of a fun little um, fire nice little uh, companion piece there. Well, my double feature is going to be the the Gypsy Curse double feature. Oh, <laughs> nice. And it's not the Wolfman, even though that would be a good one, too. But I'm going to go with a movie from 1996, uh, directed by Tom Holland, the guy who directed uh, Fright Night and the first Child's Play movie, based okay. on a, a no book by Stephen King, oh. uh, but writing as Richard Bachman. It's a movie called Thinner. Do you guys remember Thinner? Uh, yeah. John John Ro Robert John Burke, uh, who is in uh, RoboCop three, I think he plays RoboCop yeah. in RoboCop three. Uh, but basically, <laughs> he is cursed by gypsies. He's he's very overweight, and he gets thinner and thinner until he basically wastes away. Uh, he gets cursed by well, he actually is getting a. If I remember correctly, he's in his car, he's getting a blowjob from his wife. It distracts him, <laughs> and he runs over a gypsy. And then the gypsy's like husband or what I think husband curses him or maybe wife. I, I can't remember the, the, the I generation. honestly haven't seen that movie since it like first came out. And I yeah. remember <laughs> the only thing I remember from it is watching it and be like, this fat suit is fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's very clearly a fat suit. Yeah. It's like, uh, and this is right around the time that like uh, the nutty professor came out too. So uh, those two can make a good double feature too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that just means that The Nunny Professor is actually a horror movie. It, it honestly kind of is. <laughs> Why don't you sit in the lobby over here? I'll show them what for. Lobby, lobby, lobby. That's the t shirt. That's the t shirt. Let's get it going. Available now. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's do some quick fun facts uh, on this movie. Uh, I think we've covered some of it, really, on, on what I had. Uh, but uh, just interesting little things. I mean, one of the things we talked about is uh, Christine saying, I'm going to get some. That's like Ash saying, come get some. There are like little plays on Evil Dead stuff in here. Mm -hmm. uh, Clay mentions at one point they could take a trip up to his parents' cabin and just get away from it all. Uh, ah. You know, and so... <laughs> nice. There's there's that. Uh, supposedly, Sam has said, I couldn't verify this in interviews. I couldn't find them exactly, but I, I saw multiple places where people said Sam said in interviews that this is supposed to take place in the same universe. I don't know. If you're wondering, though, yes, Bruce Campbell was supposed to be in this movie, but he was busy <laughs> shooting burn notice at the time and couldn't make it. I found this tweet, actually, where somebody had asked him. Uh, why he wasn't in Drag Me to Hell. And he replied, quote, because I was dragged to Miami. <laughs> <laughs> For eight years or whatever, however long he was on that show. Yeah. 
uh, in the movie, uh, Sean Sedana, uh, played by Adriana Barraza, that we mentioned, uh, she mentions her late husband, Sander, which mm-hmm. is a reference to uh, Sam Raimi's older sibling, Sander Raimi, who was the one that passed away in a oh, swimming wow. accident. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also the name of his nephew now, also, uh, wow. Sander Rubin. Thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's yeah. The uh, other stuff, I mean, you just, you know, in case you didn't notice, Ted Raimi is in this one. He's uh, off screen kind of as a doctor. Ivan is, uh, I think he's like a goat or something. I forget where it said he was now. Scott Spiegel's in it. And I know he's in, he's a mourner at the, uh, at the mm-hmm. wake, at the yeah. wake. And uh, like the composer, Chris Young, he's like eating a muffin outside. And then, of course, uh, we talked about this a little before we started recording, but Octavia Spencer is also in this movie randomly. Yeah. Uh, just in the background working at the bank. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's it. Uncred- that's all. No backstory. Nothing else. No, nope. she's just she's just a <laughs> uncredited role, which I mean, where Octavia Spencer, what was she? I mean. It was two years before the help, which is where it she was. was okay, that's kind of where she, she won she her Oscar. Off. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that was yeah because I ended up I ended up sort of doing a, a little deep dive on Octavia Spencer. I was like, what else before this? And nothing super big of note. It was just yeah. kind of like here she is in a background role, and then two, like like I said, two years later, boom, and then she's wow. Octavia Spencer. Yeah. And that's it. That's that's really all I had for the fun facts. Though. That's all the fun facts for today. Well, despite positive critical reviews, the film currently sits at an impressive 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's one of the highest rated of Raimi's films. I think the only ones that are higher are um, Spider-Man 2. And I feel like there's maybe one more that's way up there. Like like the first Evil Dead, I think, is like a 95 or something on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. Uh, but despite that, I mean, the movie did not do great numbers at the box office it didn't do bad i should say it, it opened at number four and then it dropped to number seven its f- second week though which is not great it's like it dropped off like 56 percent. so you know which is not unusual for a horror film mm. uh, but its final box office gross was 90.8 million dollars that's worldwide which is hardly a failure on a 30 million dollar budget but it is far from a blockbuster, which is maybe why Raimi hasn't made a horror film since. I mean, it, it might be harder to get them financed when they're not, you know, bringing in a ton of money. Yeah. His next film as a director would be another director for hire gig. The Disney financed Mistfire, Oz the Great and Powerful came out in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would not direct another film until 2022 when he helmed Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness for Marvel Studios, which is to date his highest grossing film at the box office, probably more because of Dr. Strange than the Sam Raimi name, if I were to guess. Uh, but yes, yeah. Doctor, but yes, that means that Dr. Strange made more than any of the Spider-Man. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he spent plenty of time producing in the intervening years, mostly through his ghost house pictures production company, putting his money behind and stamp of approval on films like uh, Fidi Alvarez's evil dead remake in 2013 that we brought up during our evil dead uh, episodes and Alvarez's successful follow-up don't breathe uh, as well as the 2015 remake of poltergeist Alexandra Aha's uh, or Aj- Aja's, I think it's Aja because he's French. Alexander Aja's criminally underrated Crawl, which is fantastic if you haven't seen it. Really? Uh, and another addition to the Grudge franchise in 2020, which as we mentioned before, 
is not fantastic. And most recently, Iris K. Shem's Umma. Like As of this there. recording, uh, what, Umma? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard so-so things about it, but I have not seen it. Have you seen Crawl? Yeah. No, Crawl's oh. great. It's got gators. It's so yeah, it's so good. Uh, as of this recording, the next film to feature the phrase produced by Sam Raimi will be a movie called 65, written and directed by Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who are the writers behind A Quiet Place. And they also made that movie Haunt that uh, premiered on Shudder a couple of years ago. Nice. And that film, it's about, it's Adam Driver, and he's a space guy, astronaut, and he oh, goes, yeah. he crash lands on a planet to find himself 65 million years in the past and has to fight dinosaurs with lasers. And I nice. do not know how that's not going to be a movie I'm going to love. <laughs> like they're gonna, they're really gonna have to screw the pooch if they, to make that not entertaining. Uh, it's set to be released later in 2023, I think in like April or May, like pretty soon from now. Uh, speaking of crawl, you know, you mentioned that bloody disgusting interview, uh, and uh, that that was a lot from around the time that crawl uh was coming out, so it was a lot of interviews he was doing at the time. I said, whoever this was, it just dug right in to drag me to hell. Um, but it sounds like you know, this was, it's, it sounds like this was good for Raimi um, at the time. Like um, he said, quote, I look back really fondly on Drag Me to Hell. Uh, I love the crew. I love working with Allison Loma, Loman, my friend, Bob Morawski, my editor. I love shooting it with my old friend, Peter Dimming, who shot Evil Dead 2 with me. And I just love working with my brother, Ivan, on the script. And mostly I loved absolute creative control over the film. That's mm. the thing you lose often that I had on that picture. And I was really able to just do what I wanted. So in a way I feel great about it because of that. I often feel that when the studio makes you cut things or add things and change things, it really ruins the entire experience for me. It's like a cascade of just awful. Um, mm. So it's nice to hear kind of talk fondly about the experience of making this movie. And uh, I think that no matter what his return to the beginning still brought him joy doing right. what he loved doing. And he made the movie he set out to make. Like he said, he, he had complete creative control on this. And that's the first time he's had complete creative control on a movie since Evil Dead 1. Because once he hit Evil Dead 2, I mean, we know the story behind Crime Wave. Evil Dead 2, you've got Dino De Laurentiis looking over your shoulder. And like, uh, obviously, on the Spider-Man movies, he's got Avi Arad and all that, you know, everyone looking at him. And right. uh, this is the first time where he's able to do exactly what he wanted to do without anyone really telling him otherwise. Yeah. I mean, Ramey's journey has, it's been a fun one to track. You know, this is a kid who grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, making his own movies, practicing his art, working his way up through the Hollywood ranks to become one of our most successful and admired directors. And he did it all without losing that magic touch that makes Ramey's film so unique. Sam Raimi grew up watching everything from Jason and the Argonauts to the treasure of the Sierra Madre to the Three Stooges. Uh, they, these things, these movies, they entertained him. They made him laugh. And when he decided to start making films of his own, that was the lesson he took from them. He wanted to convey his love of movies, his love of entertaining to the world. Uh, but as we've said during this episode, he also learned that he had to grow with films mm -hmm. like A Simple Plan and The Gift and even the, the Spider-Man movies. He allowed himself to expand his cinematic vocabulary. But with something like Drag Me to Hell, he's also proven that he can still yuck it up with the best of them if he chooses to. If that's what he set out to do, that's what he's going to do. If the film, if a film calls for an old woman's dentures to fly out towards the screen in slow motion or for your young female protagonist to get embalming fluid poured from a corpse's mouth into her own, that's what he's going to give us because it's funny. 
<laughs> because it's entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> uh, regardless of how he has to do it, he is going to entertain this. I mean, that much, that's what we've learned over this series. That much is certain. And mm. although Ramey, you know, now he's in his 60s, I think he's 63, 64 now, he's probably inching towards retirement towards the end of his directing career but we can always hope that maybe one day between making you know 300 million dollar marvel movies or whatever he has next on his docket maybe one day before he retires if we're lucky then he's going to take us on one final spook blast ride that's all we want yeah one more yeah <laughs> and that guys that's the end that's sam raimi the entertainer you know mm. you should have talked about was that just a log He's in Jeepers <laughs> Creepers, and I love that movie. Dad, Daddy, we don't talk about Jeepers Creepers. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to get into that. Well, I loved him because he was in Dodgeball. He was so good at Dodgeball. It went, well, Mama, I loved him in Herbie, fully loaded. That was good. I'll tell you what I thought about Herbie when that car crack up. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, David, too. <laughs> I, know, I was trying to get, I was trying to get some sure. parts. I'm pretty sure that that movie is like 75% fart. So if I remember just alone, just alone, just alone. <laughs> really glad we could work on uh, several nutty professor uh, oh. jokes into this episode. Oh. I, th I think Sam Raimi would be proud. This is one for the ages, <laughs> fellas. Oh. Uh, that's all we've got, fellas. This is that's the end of this episode. We are moving on from Sam Raimi for now. Like we said, we will be revisiting him later this year. Uh, but next week. It's roulette another, time. It's roulette time. We don't know what we're watching yet, and neither do you, unless you listen to our next bonus episode, because that's when we're going to reveal, because we haven't even chosen it yet, so we will reveal it during the recording of that episode. Uh, <laughs> we will pick our next film. We're going to do a roulette episode, and then after that, we're on to a whole new series, which um, is going to be very different from this one. We'll just say that. So, <laughs> it sure is. Very... Get your filthy pig knuckle <laughs> off the roulette wheel, Todd. <laughs> ball sack <laughs> uh well in the meantime where can you fellas be found on the internet well you can find me uh, over at wa also at this is gary horde at tipw show at cinema score shock i don't know why i keep doing that now but i don't know there's so many accounts on twitter i don't know whichever one elon lets us use i'm, I'm on that one <laughs> how about you todd uh, well, uh, I'm going to uh, plug my friend's charity campaign that she's got going on uh, GoFundMe right now. Again, Alyssa Fowler, good friend of mine and my wife's. She's a, a wonderful, wonderful person, uh, a mother, a small business owner. Uh, as we've mentioned uh, before, uh, she uh, has been uh, diagnosed with cancer, as has her daughter. And they are raising money for their cancer treatments. We did a we did a charity comedy show for them uh patrick cunningham good good friend of mine from Flor uh, florida from georgia came up and uh really really uh wowed the audience with his uh comedy i uh, don't want to give too much of his act away but needless to say he does some shakespeare as iced tea and it's fucking awesome <laughs> so uh but anyways they're they're good people it's a good cause uh please please consider i know we're right here after the holidays and i'm sure you know everyone's recovering financially from the holidays but if you've got any anything to spare uh please consider giving it to the fowler family and uh we really really appreciate it the link for that's going to be uh in the show notes and uh we 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 genuinely thank you thank you thank you 
But you can find the show at cinema underscore shock. Uh, you can also find us at cinemashock.net. You'll find links to all of our uh, merchandise, all of our episodes, obviously, and Discord and all that kind of stuff there. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook and go join our movie club group on there where we have all kinds of discussions about movie news. Uh, Discord's always a great place for that as well. We've got a great little community going on over there. Uh, for me personally, you can find me at uh, Justin underscore Bishop. That's on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. I desire the keys of Johnny. We will feast upon them while he festers in the grave. What I hope for in 2023 is that Slasher Film Festival strategy, who, if you don't know, does our intro and exit, does our music on this, Psychotronic Film Society and everything. Anyway, I want it to be a remix featuring all the times that Todd and I have to say to Justin that he's muted. <laughs> we cut all that out of the show though yeah i know it's too bad like i think we need to start saving those it's always muted. because i'm drinking water muted. and i don't want muted. you to hear me slurping <laughs> it sounds like this but it's funny we'll say something and then we can just see him going he's just like yeah up and like oh man he's going. on a roll look at him go <laughs> <laughs> you can't hear shit but he's just talking <laughs> <laughs>